Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 332. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Welcome to the second part of the British Science Fiction Awards specials, where we play the best short stories that are up for a nomination for that award. Like I say, we're in part two, and we have some great stories. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is Selkie's Stories of a Losers by Sophia Samatra. Then we're going to play a little promo for Farfetched Fables. Yes. Then we have the next part main fiction, which is Spin by Nina Allen. Those are the stories that's coming up. Like I say, this is the second part of this kind of little awards special that we've put together for the British Science Fiction Awards. These stories and last week's stories are up for the award for Best Short Story. Which one do you like? Again, there'll be a link on there if you want to kind of go over and vote and see what's happening over there. Please do that. That would be fantastic. So we'll jump straight in to Selkie Stories of a Losers by Sophia Samata. I'll give you a little heads up about Sophia. Sophia is the author of the novel A Stranger in Landia, Small Beer Press, April 2013. She edits non-fiction and poetry for Interfictions, a journal of international arts. She generally feels torn between two things she loves in equal measures, clean diction, ornate prose, bleakness, romance, fiction, non-fiction. There you go. I'll put a link on to Sophia's website. Please pop over there and say hello. This is just, you know, Sophia, good luck. Great story, this. 
The story is narrated by Julie Carter. Julie has been a linguist, a legal secretary, a neighbor, English teacher, medical transcriptionist, potter, telephone operator, singer, San Francisco Giants fan, and a proud aunt. She multitasked sofa con and a Giants game and has the photos to prove it. And I've seen those photographs. And Julie, they were fantastic. Right in the kind of, you know, a proper kind of big match and there's julie holding up this kind of little of uh, this big poster saying you know like sofa con <gasps> man fantastic she got a start in voice acting as popo puppeteer at the iowa city public library and has been a volunteer narrator and proof listener for librivox.org you can reach her at julie at dot at net at, at julie i'll put a link on <laughs> there's too many ats and dots in that one so the Starship Sova is very proud to present Selkie Stories of a Losers by Sophia Samata. I hate Selkie Stories. They're always about how you went up to the attic to look for a book and you found a disgusting old coat and brought it downstairs between finger and thumb and said, what's this? And you never saw your mom again. I work at a restaurant called La Pacha. I got the job after my mom left to help with the bills. On my first night at work, I got yelled at twice by the head server, burnt my fingers on a hot dish, spilled lentil parsley soup all over my apron, and left my keys in the kitchen. I didn't realize at first I'd forgotten my keys. I stood in the parking lot, breathing slowly and letting the oil smell lift away from my hair. And when all the other cars had started up and driven away, I put my hand in my jacket pocket. Then I knew. I ran back to the restaurant and banged on the door. Of course, no one came. I smelled cigarette smoke an instant before I heard the voice. Hey. I turned, and Mona was standing there, smoke rising white from between her fingers. I left my keys inside, I said. Mona's the only other server at La Pacha who's a girl. She's related to everybody at the restaurant except me. The owner, who goes by Uncle Tad is really her uncle, her mom's brother. Don't talk to him unless you have to, Mona advised me. He's a creeper. That was after she'd sighed and dropped her cigarette and crushed it out with her shoe and stepped into my clasped hand so I could boost her up to the window after she'd wriggled through into the kitchen and opened the door for me. She said, Madame, in a dry voice and bowed. At least I think she said, Madame. She might have said, My lady. I don't remember that night too well because we drank a lot of wine. Mona said that as long as we were breaking and entering, we might as well steal something, and she lined up all the bottles of red wine that had already been opened. I shone the light from my phone on her while she took out the special rubber corks and poured some of each bottle into a plastic pitcher. She called it the house wine. I was surprised she was being so nice to me since she'd hardly spoken to me while we were working. Later, she told me she hates everybody the first time she meets them. I called home, but Dad didn't pick up. He was probably in the basement. I left him a message and turned off my phone. Do you know what this guy said to me tonight? Mona asked. He wanted beef couscous, and he said, I'll have the beef conscious. Mona's mom doesn't work at La Pacha, but sometimes she comes in around 3 o'clock and sits in Mona's section and cries. Then Mona jams on her orange baseball cap and goes out through the back and smokes a cigarette, and I take over her section. Mona's mom won't order anything from me. 
She's got Mona's eyes, or Mona's got hers, huge angry eyes with lashes that curl up at the ends. She shakes her head and says, nothing, nothing. Finally, Uncle Tad comes over and Mona's mom hugs and kisses him, sobbing in Arabic. After work, Mona says, got the keys? We get in my car and I drive us through town to the bone zone, a giant cemetery on a hill. I pull into the empty parking lot and Mona rolls a joint. There's only one lamp burning high and cold in the middle of the lot. Mona pushes her shoes off and puts her feet up on the dashboard and cries. She warned me about that the night we met. I said something stupid to her like, You're so funny. And she said, Actually, I cry a lot. That's something you should know. I was so happy she thought I should know things about her. I didn't care. I still don't care. But it's true that Mona cries a lot. She cries because she's scared her mom will take her away to Egypt, where the family used to live, and where Mona has never been. What would I do there? I don't even speak Arabic. She wipes her mascara on her sleeve, and I tell her to look at the lamp outside and pretend that its glassy brightness is a bonfire, and that she and I are personally throwing every sulky story ever written onto it and watching them burn up. You and your sulky stories, she says. I tell her they're not my selkie stories, not ever, and I'll never tell one, which is true, I never will. And I don't tell her how I went up to the attic that day, or that what I was looking for was a book I used to read when I was little, Beauty and the Beast, which is a really decent story about an animal who gets turned into a human and stays that way, the way it's supposed to be. I don't tell Mona that Beauty's black hair coiled to the edge of the page, or that Beast had yellow horns and a smoking jacket, or that instead of finding the book, I found the coat, and my mom put it on and went out the kitchen door and started up her car. One silky story tells about a man from Myrdalur. He was on the cliffs one day and heard people singing and dancing inside a cave, and he noticed a bunch of skins piled on the rocks. He took one of the skins home and locked it in a chest, and when he went back, a girl was sitting there alone, crying. She was naked, and he gave her some clothes and took her home. They got married and had kids. You know how this goes. One day the man changed his clothes and forgot to take the key to the chest out of his pocket, and when his wife washed the clothes, she found it. You're not going to Egypt, I tell Mona. We're going to Colorado, remember? That's our big dream, to go to Colorado. It's where Mona was born. She lived there until she was four. She still remembers the rocks and the pines and the cold, cold air. She says the clouds of Colorado are bright, like pieces of mirror. In Colorado, Mona's parents got divorced, and Mona's mom tried to kill herself for the first time. She tried it once here, too. She put her head in the oven, resting on a pillow. Mona was in seventh grade. Selkies go back to the sea in a flash, like they've never been away. That's one of the ways they're different from human beings. Once, my dad tried to go back somewhere. He was in the army, stationed in Germany, and he went to Norway to look up the town my great-grandmother came from. He actually found the place, and even an old farm with the same name as us. In the town, he went into a restaurant and ordered lutefisk, a disgusting fish thing my grandmother makes. The cook came out of the kitchen and looked at him like he was nuts. She said they only eat lutefisk at Christmas. There went Dad's plan of bringing back the original flavor of lutefisk. Now all he's got from Norway is my great-grandmother's Bible. 
There's also the diary she wrote on the farm up north, but we can't read it. There's only four English words in the whole book. My God, awful day. You might suspect my dad picked my mom up in Norway, where they have seals. He didn't, though. He met her at the pool. As for mom, she never talked about her relatives. I asked her once if she had any, and she said they were no kind of people. At the time, I thought she meant they were druggies or murderers, maybe in prison somewhere. Now I wish that was true. One of the stories I don't tell Mona comes from a dictionary of British folklore in the English language. In that story, it's the Selkie's little girl who points out where the skin is hidden. She doesn't know what's going to happen, of course. She just knows her mother is looking for a skin, and she remembers her dad taking one out from under the bed and stroking it. The little girl's mother drags out the skin and says, Farewell, Piri Budo. She doesn't think about how the little girl is going to miss her, or how if she's been breathing air all this time, she can surely keep it up a little longer. She just throws on the skin and jumps into the sea. After Mom left, I waited for my dad to get home from work. He didn't say anything when I told him about the coat. He stood in the light of the clock on the stove and rubbed his fingers together softly, almost like he was snapping but with no sound. Then he sat down at the kitchen table and lit a cigarette. I'd never seen him smoke in the house before. Mom's going to lose it, I thought. And then I realized that, no, my mom wasn't going to lose anything. We were the losers, me and Dad. He still waits up for me, so just before midnight I pull out of the parking lot. I'm hoping to get home early enough that he doesn't grumble, but late enough that he doesn't want to come up from the basement where he takes apart old TVs and talk to me about college. I've told him I'm not going to college. I'm going to Colorado, a landlocked state. Only 20 out of 50 states are completely landlocked, which means they don't touch the Great Lakes or the sea. Mona turns on the light and tries to put on eyeliner in the mirror, and I swerve to make her mess up. She turns out the light and hits me. All the windows are down to air out the car, and Mona's hair blows wild around her face. Piri Budo, the book says, is a term of endearment. Piri Budo, I say to Mona. She's got the hiccups. She can't stop laughing. I've never kissed Mona. I've thought about it a lot, but I keep deciding it's not time. It's not that I think she'd freak out or anything. It's not even that I'm afraid she wouldn't kiss me back. It's worse. I'm afraid she'd kiss me back, but not mean it. Probably one of the biggest losers to fall in love with the Selkie was the man who carried her skin around in his knapsack. He was so scared she'd find it that he took the skin with him everywhere, when he went fishing, when he went drinking in the town. Then one day he had a wonderful catch of fish. There were so many he couldn't drag them all home in his net. He emptied his knapsack and filled it with fish, and he put the skin over his shoulder, and on his way up the road to his house, he dropped it. Gray in front and gray in back, tis the very thing I lack. That's what the man's wife said when she found the skin. The man ran to catch her. He even kissed her, even though she was already a seal. But she squirmed off down the road and flopped into the water. The man stood knee-deep in the chilly waves, stinking of fish, and cried. In Selkie stories, kissing never solves anything. No transformation happens because of a kiss. No one loves you just because you love them. What kind of fairy tale is that? She wouldn't wake up, Mona says. I pulled her out of the oven onto the floor and I turned off the gas and opened the windows. 
It's not that I was smart. I wasn't thinking at all. I called Uncle Tad and the police, and I still wasn't thinking. I don't believe she wasn't smart. She even tried to give her mom CPR, but her mom didn't wake up until later in the hospital. They had to reach in and drag her out of death. She was so closed up in it. Death is skin tight, Mona says. Gray in front and gray in back. Dear Mona, when I look at you, my skin hurts. I pull into her driveway to drop her off. The house is dark, the darkest house on her street, because Mona's mom doesn't like the porch light on. She says it shines in around the blinds and keeps her awake. Mona's mom has a beautiful bedroom upstairs with lots of old photographs and gilt frames, but she sleeps on the living room couch beside the aquarium. Looking at the fish helps her to sleep, although she also says this country has no real fish. That's what Mona calls one of her mom's refrains. Mona gets out, yanking the little piece of my heart that stays with her wherever she goes. She stands outside the car and leans in through the open door. I can hardly see her, but I can smell the lemon-scented stuff she puts on her hair, mixed with the smells of sweat and weed. Mona smells like a forest, not the sea. Oh, my God, she says. I forgot to tell you, tonight, you know, table six, that big horde of Uncle Tad's friends? Yeah. So they wanted the soup with the food, and I forgot. And you know what the old guy says to me, the little guy at the head of the table? What? He goes, Vous êtes bête, mademoiselle. She says it in a rough, growly voice and laughs. I can tell it's French, but that's all. What does it mean? You're an idiot, miss. She tucks her head, stifling giggles. He called you an idiot? Yeah, bet. It's like beast. She lifts her head, then shakes it. A light from someone else's porch bounces off her nose. She puts on a fake Norwegian accent and says, My God, awful day. I nod. Awful day. And because we say it all the time, because it's the kind of silly, ordinary thing you could call one of our refrains, or maybe because of the weed I've smoked, a whole bunch of days seem pressed together inside this moment, more than you could count. There's the time we all went out for New Year's Eve, and Uncle Tad drove me, and when he stopped and I opened the door, he told me to close it, and I said, I will when I'm on the other side. And when I told Bona, we laughed so hard we had to run away and hide in the bathroom. There's the day some people we know from school came in, and we served them wine, even though they were underage, and Mona got nervous and spilled it all over the tablecloth. And the day her nice cousin came to visit and made us cheese and mint sandwiches in the microwave and got yelled at for wasting food. And the day of the party for Mona's mom's birthday, when Uncle Tad played music and made us all dance, and Mona's mom's eyes went jewelly with tears, and afterwards Mona told me, I should just run away. I'm the only thing keeping her here. My God, awful days. All the best days of my life. Bye, Mona whispers. I watch her until she disappears into the house. My mom used to swim every morning at the YWCA. When I was little, she took me along. I didn't like swimming. I'd sit in a chair with a book while she went up and down, up and down... A dim streak in the water. When I read Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, it seemed like Mom was a lab rat doing tasks, the way she kept touching one side of the pool and then the other. At last she climbed out and pulled off her bathing cap. In the locker room she hung up her suit, a thin gray rag dripping on the floor. 
Most people put the hook of their padlock through the straps of their suit so the suits could hang outside the lockers without getting stolen. But my mom never did that. She just tied her suit loosely onto the lock. No one's going to steal that stretchy old thing, she said. And no one did. That should have been the end of the story, but it wasn't. My dad says mom was an elemental, a sort of stranger, not of our kind. It wasn't my fault she left. It was because she couldn't learn to breathe on land. That's the worst story I've ever heard. I'll never tell Mona, not ever, not even when we're leaving for Colorado with everything we need in the back of my car, and I meet her at the grocery store the way we've already planned, and she runs out smiling under her orange baseball cap. I won't tell her how dangerous addicts are, or how some people can't start over, or how I still see my mom in shop windows with her long hair the same silver gray as her coat, or how once when my little cousins came to visit, we went to the zoo and the seals recognized me. They both stood up in the water and talked in a foreign language. I won't tell her. I'm too scared. I won't even tell her what she needs to know, that we've got to be tougher than our moms, that we've got to have different stories, that she'd better not change her mind and drop me in Colorado, because I won't understand. I'll hate her forever and burn her stuff and stay up all night screaming at the woods, because it's stupid not to be able to breathe. Who ever heard of somebody breathing in one place but not another? And we're not like that, Mona and me. And Selkie stories are only for losers stuck on the wrong side of magic. People who drop things, who tell all, who leave keys around, who let go. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Sophia. Sophia, honestly, good luck. Well done. Just before I play the promo for Farfetched Fables, I just want to a little shout out to Adam, our assistant editor, and his good lady. They, last week, just gave birth to a little baby girl. <laughs> He didn't say anything about it, never told us, never anything. And he's just, I know Adam's been kind of prepping a few shows in advance. And I was kind of thinking, something's obviously Adam's busy somewhere, but well done. You know what I mean? Congratulations, Adam. That is fantastic. So congratulations to the, the proud parents. And at this moment, Adam is probably in sleep-deprived, kind of mixed up, upside down. <laughs> He's walking around with, like, odd socks and, like, cold tea and everything. So, Adam, it's just a fantastic time, honestly, man. Amazing. <gasps> well done, sir. So, yes, we're going to play Far-Fetched Fables, the promo. Don't forget, next week as well, I will not be here. This show is getting taken over by a fantasy podcast that we're starting. Yes, Far-Fetched Fables is coming for one week only, don't worry, one week only to Starship Sova's feed. We're going to play as like a special, just to give you a kind of a taste of what's going on over there. And we're having a planned start, hopefully, for the 22nd of April when Farfetch Fables kind of takes off and goes and runs themselves. But like I say, next week is special fantasy takeover of Starships over airwaves. <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien once said, A single dream is more powerful than a thousand realities. In that spirit, the District of Wonders brings you many more dreams in the form of stories. A new fantasy podcast, Far-Fetched Fables, will be launching soon. 
Fantastic fabulisms from writers like Gene Wolfe, A.A. Atanasio, Jenny Wirtz and many more. Stay tuned to the Starship Sofa for details. Very good, don't forget, come over. We'll get it all so you can subscribe and everything like that, but look out for next week when I'll have actually more, well, I'll not have more news, but you'll be able to hear Farfetch Fables' new show, see what you think. Now, you think I'm, I'm to me at the moment, I'm, I'm, it feels like I'm rushing, but it's, I'm, I might be rushing through things, which is, my mother's cupboard. I'm just in between the starting this recording and kind of getting up to this point now. I've had a phone call, Tony Love, we're on my way. It's like, oh, my mother, my mother. <laughs> so, <laughs> gotta, get, gotta get it done, get it done now. There's, Oh, couldn't it be? Hey, love, what you? Hey, have you? Oh, I never. Did you know? Did you know Mrs. Dodd from down the road? Yes, she did. She did. So, yes, let's, let's carry on. Let's get this sorted. Next up is the second and the final story from the British Awards, Science Fiction Awards. This is the kind of, like I say, both two weeks we're doing this. This is Spin by Nina Rannell, Alan. And Nina throughout you know what i mean just done some cracking stories and we've played a couple of nina's stories as well and a lovely person you know always keen just to kind of let her you know play the stories which i really appreciate nina was born in Whitechapel, london grew up in the midlands and west sussex and studied russian literature at the university of exeter wow go on <laughs> nina <laughs> she wrote a first short story at the age of six Reoccurring obsessions included old crooks and rare insects, forgotten manuscripts and abandoned houses. The stories have appeared regularly in the premier British speculative fiction magazine Interzone, Black Static and Crime Wave and are featured in Anthology's Best Horror of the Year, number two, the year's Best SF, 28, and the year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy, 2012 and 2013. Her story, Angelus, won the Eon Award in 2007. And the short fiction is shown up in the BFS and the British Science Fiction Association shortlist on several occasions. A first collection of short fiction, A Thread of Truth, was published by Elaville Vale Press in 2007, followed by her short story cycle, The Silver Wind, in 2011. Her most recent books are the story collection Microcosm, Newcom Press, March 2013, and the Nevada Spin which is Third Alternate Press, 2013, and Stardust, the Ruby Castle Stories, PS Publishing, April 2013. Her first novel, The Rear, set in an alternate and near-future vision of Southeast England, will be published in the summer of 2014 by Newcom Press. And like I say, Nina's putting out some cracking work there. I, kinda, I don't want to kind of go down, you know, because I'm influencing on the show. I just want to kind of get the stories out, but, you know, some of Nina's work. Sorry, Nina's work there is just fantastic. You know what I mean? And Newcom Press. You know what I mean? Just type in that. You know what I mean? Some stories there. Just fantastic. This story is actually narrated by Barbara Dillon. Barbara Dillon is the editor, producer, and actress. Barbara is the managing editor and co-founder of the Fanboy Comics, an online conglomerate of geek, media, and independent comic book publisher. During her time with Fanboy Comics, she has served as editor, producer of the graphic novels, Something Animal, Identity Thief, and The Arcs. 
In addition to work with Fanboy Comics, Barbara can be heard as the voice of Katniss Everdeen in the Katniss Chronicles, an unofficial and unauthorised audio drama based on The Hunger Games, as well as the voice of Clara in Pendant Audio's production of Phantom Canyon. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Spin by Nina Allen. Her father was not there to say goodbye. It was not unusual for him to get up early and take the boat out, but Layla knew that today it was deliberate, that he didn't want to see her leave. She walked to the bus stop by way of the harbor front, hoping she might still catch a glimpse of him, his body a taut line above the water as he pulled back on the oster's sail rope, aiming the sea kite into the sunrise like an arrow into fire. She scanned the horizon expectantly, shading her eyes with both hands, but there was no sign of him. He was too far out by now, probably. It might be several hours before he returned. She arrived at the harbor bus stop just after six. Dawn was stepping from the sea onto the sand. When she was a child, Layla liked to imagine that her mother would come back to her that way, rising smoothly out of the water she had been drowned in her sodden dress clinging to the curves of her body like a second skin, her long feet high-arched and pearly white in their pink suede flip-flops. The stop was deserted. The seven o'clock shuttle would be much busier, something Layla had wanted to avoid. As it was, the bus came late, rattling along the coast road in a trail of diesel fumes and fine white dust. She showed the driver her ticket, then sat down on a bench near the front, she disliked the back seats, where the cloth merchants and wool gatherers played out their endlessly rolling whist tournaments and gave one another black eyes when they started to lose. She stowed her rucksack under the seat. This made the space more cramped, but she didn't feel like trusting her luggage to the open rack. As the bus drew away from the waterfront and headed inland, Layla wondered if it was true what her nurse Iona had told her that once you were away from the coast, the Mani became another country entirely. She could sense the land's rough breathing, so different from the sweet-mouthed breezes that stirred the breakers along the shoreline at Cardamile. The road across the mountains was bumpy and gravel-strewn, still unmade in places. The slopes above steeped thickly in stunted olives and golden saxifrage. For the first time since buying her ticket, Layla felt queasy with doubt and something she supposed was homesickness. If the Tigatus were another country, the tall city itself was an alien world. They came into Kalamata at around midday. This was a scheduled rest stop, an hour to stock up on food or just stretch your legs. Layla walked down to the harbor, where a consignment of mirror glass was being unloaded from a steam freighter and lifted into gleaming stacks onto the open bed of a sky truck. The navvies glistened with sweat while a tiny bearded man clutching an iPad dashed around yelling instructions. Layla bought a crab sandwich and watched the harbor traffic as it inched slowly towards the exit slipway that led to the ring road. The people in the cars were brightly dressed, their cheap garments a rainbow of synthetics, reductions of the hues her father had taken decades to perfect. Their loud cacophony raised an itching sensation in her nerve endings. At five minutes to the hour, she began to walk back. She knew more passengers would be boarding at Kalamata, and she didn't want to risk losing her seat. By the time the rest stop was over, the bus was full. The seat beside her, empty until the rest stop, was now occupied by an old woman. 
She was stick-thin and frightening to look at, ugly in a way that was almost freakish. On her lap she held a knapsack, a leather drawstring bag that seemed to heave and pulse with a life of its own. Layla dreaded to think what horror might be inside. She stared fixedly out of the window, determined not to meet the crone's gaze. She yearned to get out her embroidery, but her rucksack had slipped right back under the seat, and she didn't want to draw attention to herself by rubbaging for it. It would be another five hours until they stopped for the night in Corinth. The thought of having the old woman wedged up against her for the duration made her feel sick. There was a toilet break at Tegea, where to Layla's surprise the old woman vacated her seat as soon as the vehicle came to a standstill. Layla snatched up her rucksack and got off the bus. There was a roadside drinking fountain, a rusted length of piping set straight into the rock. Layla drank, filling her mouth and throat with a taste of coins. In spite of the heat of the day, the water was icy. The cicadas were in uproar. The uneven road shimmered in the heat like a mirage. After ten minutes or so, the bus driver blew a whistle and everyone began to re-embark. Layla pushed to the front, not wanting the old crone to get ahead of her and grab the window seat. When the old woman didn't appear, she felt surprised. As they lurched out of the lay-by, Layla scanned the roadside, half expecting to see her hobbling after the bus at a stunted run, the bulging leather sack clutched to her chest. There was no sign of her, however, and the seat beside Layla remained empty. As the evening drew on, the light softened, winding down from topaz through sapphire to a dusty amethyst. Layla opened her rucksack and drew out the miniature panorama she had been working on before she left. It was scarcely begun, with just one bright corner of stitching as proof of what she intended. But already the piece possessed her, had become for her as each new work inevitably did, a material extension of her spirit. She was using the smallest of her embroidery frames, the only one she had that would fit inside her rucksack without having to be taken apart. It was made of ginkgo wood, the timber sanded and then sealed with teak oil, its two interlocking sections a perfect fit. It had been Iona who had first shown her how to use it, how to stretch the canvas as tight as it would go over the inner circle, then secure it by winding the four brass screws on the outer ring. Layla had been four at the time, and making a nuisance of herself by excavating the contents of Iona's workbasket. No doubt Iona believed the child in her charge would soon become bored when faced with having to do something more constructive than simply making a mess. As it turned out, she was wrong. By the afternoon of the same day, Layla was able to form a simple cross-stitch. A week later, she presented her father Idmund with her first tapestry. The work was simple, but it was extraordinary nonetheless. Where a less complicated child might have tried to work a simplified diagram of the house she lived in, say, or her pet monkey— the four-year-old Layla Vargas had colored the entire area of the circular canvas with a forest of green stitching, an abstract design created from the odd tag ends of test silk she had found scattered beneath the workbenches of the master dyers. Edmund Vargas counted 26 different shades of green in all. The stitching itself was almost perfectly uniform, the standard of workmanship you might expect from a girl three times Layla's age or even more. Layla remembered being made a fuss of. She remembered becoming aware that in the eyes of Iona and her father and the workmen in the silk shops, she had performed an unusual feat. But in her own mind, these things were marginal and surface, 
like the wavelets that scurry along the shoreline at the first breath of wind. What mattered to her was the thing that happened inside her when she thought about the silk. Until the day she learned to cross-stitch, she had been surrounded by color and texture without realizing that something might be made of it. Afterwards, the ginkgo frame became for her an O as vast as the world, a circular window she could climb through into realms and realities of her own choosing. With this O, she could draw sense from color and make it her slave. She could bind it to herself, refine it as the high priestess at Delphi refined the empty echoes in the hollow rocks below and brought them forth into daylight as the voice of a god. When she was twelve years old, Layla suddenly became convinced that her mother, Romilly Perec, had been a sibyl. It was the only way she could think of to explain her gift, and although all savants now held equal rights under the law, she had learned at school that sibyls were still being executed for crimes of clairvoyancy as little as ten years ago, especially in the provinces. She hugged her thoughts to herself until they became too heavy to carry. Then she asked Iona if it were true. Don't be ridiculous, said Iona. Her face flushed a deep turkey wattle red, and Layla was reminded of something she didn't usually think of, that Iona was the butcher's daughter, that when she wasn't cooking and cleaning for Edmund Vargas, she was in the slaughterhouse, boiling up buckets of blood to make black puddings. Your mother wouldn't have known a needle if it jumped up and stung her. She wrote things, that's all, stupid things. She had no time for clairvoyancy, just as she had no time for the law or for the forum or for the honest work come to that. Don't you let your father catch you asking questions about her or he'll tan you one. Layla felt like striking Iona across the face with her outstretched hand, pushing her backwards into the meat larder and reminding her that Edmund Vargas had never tanned her one in her entire life. Instead, she went on to her room and lay down on the bed digging her fingernails into her hands to keep from crying. It wasn't that she objected to crying so much. It was just that she wasn't going to let Iona Philippos catch her at it. Later that evening, she began to work on what she later recognized as the first of what she called her panoramas, larger-scale tapestries of the length and breadth of a dining table or even bigger, large enough to tell whole stories rather than just illustrations of particular scenes. This first panorama showed a squad of triremes sailing out of the circular harbor at Lemony. In the foreground by the harbor wall, two fishermen were dragging a woman's body out of the water. The woman's feet were bound. Water streamed off the naked torsos of the fishermen in rivulets of transparent aquamarine. The water effect was particularly hard to attain, and Layla had worked on this obsessively, unpicking and stitching over until it was right. The master of the leading trireme, a stocky, dark-haired man with a square black beard, was talking into a mobile phone. When her father saw the weaving, he went very quiet. "'Who told you?' he said at last. "'I didn't want you to know about your mother until you were older.' "'No one told me anything,' said Layla. "'I made it up, all by myself.' She felt a flame-colored spurt of annoyance that he might think she had copied— assumed that the images he saw in the tapestry were not her own. At the same instant Iona entered the room, her sturdy body purposeful as a steam train as she salvaged three dirty coffee cups, a slew of magazines, a plate of toast crusts. 
Iona was not supposed to enter Layla's room without knocking, and Layla knew she was only doing it now because her father was there. She opened her mouth to remonstrate, but that was when Iona raised her head and caught first glimpse of the panorama. The coffee cups crashed to the floor. Two of them smashed, and Layla saw the third roll out of sight beneath a chair. She retrieved it a month later, busy with mold. Iona was pressing her hands to her mouth, and Layla saw with shock that there were tears in her eyes. It's all right, Iona, said her father. Layla and I will finish tidying up in here. You get yourself home. You look tired. When Iona had left and they had eaten supper, Edmund Vargas told his daughter how her mother had died. By the time they came into Corinth, it was too dark to see anything much. The streets of the old town were steeped in a deep twilight, the ancient bitter purple of woad. Layla put her work away and sat with her face pressed to the window glass, trying to see past her reflection to the city outside. Most of Corinth had been destroyed in the war with Carthage a century earlier, but pockets of older buildings remained, a cluster of narrow townhouses around an old pump well the shadowed bulk of a six-story department store clad in traditional protective ironwork. Here and there, a pale gold light stretched feeble fingers through the slats of a shuttered window. There was a deep silence, as if the place was still in mourning for itself, and it was not until the bus crossed the bridge into the modern portion of the city that Layla realized that Old Corinth was little more than a stopping-off place for tourists doing the rounds of the ancient sites. The new town was a garrison town, a place people passed through or left from, and seemed to consist mainly of a series of truck stops, connected by strips of broken gray asphalt and illuminated by the harsh neon lighting of the all-night bars and convenience stores that encircled them. The bus ratcheted its way across the potholed tarmac of the inner ring road and then drew itself to a standstill outside a sagging, lopsided carcass of a building with fake Corinthian columns and a flashing fluorescent roof sign depicting a bull. The place was called the Hotel Europa, and Layla realized with a sinking feeling that it was their overnight rest stop. She had never been in such a place before. On those few occasions when she had traveled to a tall city with her father, they had invariably been put up in the luxurious private homes of one or other of Edmund Vargas's business associates, and in a tall city itself there were the plush corporate hotels strung out along the western end of the harbor front in cross-hatched gleaming diagonals of steel and glass. Her father held standing tariffs with at least two of them on account of his sales reps. The Europa was not much better than a trucker's hostel the kind of place Iona would call a dive. Layla glanced around anxiously, wanting to see what the other passengers might make of it. Some would be ending their journey at Corinth, of course. They wouldn't be staying at the Europa in any case. As soon as it became stationary, the bus erupted into hubbub and general upheaval as people hauled their bags down from the racks and rushed to stow stray possessions in their hand luggage. Layla waited until the bus was almost empty before making her way forward to the exit. She understood that a night's stay at the Europa was included in her ticket price, but she wasn't sure of the procedure for checking in. She glanced at the driver, the stout peasant with elaborately lifelike tattoos of handcuffs on both wrists, and his black beard combed and stiffened to resemble a dagger. "'Excuse me,' she said. He rattled something at her in what sounded like Aramaic and waved his hands. She thought she recognized the words ticket and reception. "'Okay,' she said. "'Thanks.' 
She stepped off the bus and walked towards the hotel entrance, tagging along behind a group of shark fishermen whom she remembered boarding the bus at Kalamata. Once inside, they clustered around the reception desk, joshing and throwing mock insults in loud voices. A black woman in a teal-blue headscarf was handing out keys. She was young, still under thirty, her dark skin lustrous as teak. Layla wondered where she was from. She was not used to seeing African women, although two of her father's Murex farmers were from Ethiopia. Idmin Vargas said they had a natural feel for the work, that the Murex snails liked them. The black woman handed Layla a key on a piece of red string. You're on the third floor, she said. It's a bit of a climb, but at least you ought to get some peace and quiet. She glanced pointedly towards the sharkman and smiled. As she turned her head, Layla was horrified to see the right side of her face was heavily scarred. A tube of twisted, thickened tissue cut through the taut, shining flesh of her cheek like a dug trench. The result of a knife wound, probably. Layla wondered if such things were an occupational hazard at the Europa. Don't worry, said the woman. I consider this to be my necessary inoculation against bandits. She laughed a high, hiccuping laugh, like the call of some exotic bird. Layla shrank back, ashamed that the woman had caught her staring. There were tiny, faceted gemstones in her ears, the yellowish, sun-spattered green of peridots. The sallow gleam of the overhead bulb seemed to spool itself around them like a tapeworm. Layla took her key and went upstairs. Her room was tucked under the eaves, and the light from the flashing bull sign threw colored patterns across the bare lino. There was a smell of sun-bleached air and spent tobacco, and from somewhere within the depths of the hotel there came the muted but insistent droning of a crying baby. It was such a relief to be away from people that Layla barely noticed these minor discomforts. She took off her trainers and lay down on the bed. She thought she would fall asleep immediately, but the strangeness of the place and the accumulated heat of the day stuffed beneath the rafters like a goose-down quilt kept her from doing so. She dozed, a series of images from the day's events flickering across the backs of her eyelids like trapped moths. She was jerked out of this half-sleep by someone knocking at the door. She drew in her breath, heart-hammering, thinking about the woman with the knife wound and wondering how loudly she would have to scream in a place like the Europa before anyone would take any notice. She waited to see what else might happen, and when nothing did, she tiptoed across to the door and cracked it open. Outside in the corridor stood a crock of water and a tin bowl filled with rice and keftides. Layla's innards seemed to swoon. She realized she had not eaten since the crab sandwich on the harbor front at Kalamata. She wolfed down the food in less than ten minutes, and soon afterwards she fell asleep for real. When she woke, it was morning, and daylight was pouring in through the uncurtained window. She pulled on her trainers and reached for her rucksack. She noticed how different the little room looked in daylight, less tawdry. There was a framed print on the wall, a page from Agnes Sartoria's Manga I Need. Layla hurried downstairs. She felt certain it had been the black woman who had brought her the food the night before, and she didn't want to leave without thanking her. But there was no sign of her in reception, and the desk was now being manned by a youth with a lurid crop of pimples on his forehead and flimsy-looking wire-framed glasses. The bus is out front, he said. You'd better hurry or it'll leave without you. You overslept. He grinned as she ran for the door. The bus was full again, and because of her lateness, Layla had to make do with an aisle seat. She closed her eyes against the glare of the sun and did not open them again until they were pulling into the Atoll City bus depot. Macy Persimmon was there to meet her as arranged. 
Macy was Edmund Vargas's Atoll City accounts manager. Layla suspected she was also his mistress, or at least had been at some point in the past. Layla had never seen her hair the same color twice, and on the day she arrived in Atoll City, it was lapis blue. Oh my God, you're here, Macy cried. Was the bus ride terrible? I bet it was. I told your father he should have made you come by Skyway. It was no problem, Layla said, honestly. She had forgotten how exhausting Macy could be. She felt like saying her father was no longer in a position to make her do anything, that he had offered to pay her skyfare and she had refused, because having to rely on his money at the very moment she stepped into her new, independent life as an adult would have seemed like an admission of defeat. She said none of these things, of course. Macy Persimmon, with her mirror-glass hair and effortless elegance, always had a way of making her feel like a tongue-tied child. They drove in Macy's car to Macy's flat in Amberville, a part of the city beyond the financial reach of anyone but the intercontinental shipping magnets and the spice traders. Macy's apartment was about the size of a large broom cupboard. It was also a tip, a compost heap of expensive perfume and designer underwear. Macy had offered to put Layla up on her Z-bed until she found somewhere more permanent. The Z-bed was in the corner of the lounge-come-kitchen, jammed in behind a stack of cardboard boxes overflowing with fashion magazines and an enormous TV monitor. Macy's bed was on a platform above, accessed by a wrought-iron ladder that appeared to double as a clothes-drying area. The whole apartment buzzed with color, but of an inferior ephemeral kind, the plasticized glare of acrylic as opposed to the lustrous patina of oil. Layla couldn't help feeling there was a mismatch between the clamorous brightness of the things Macy owned and the nervous way she darted about, as if in spite of her sparky confidence she feared close scrutiny. Layla gazed at the cast-aside stockings, the strew of magazines and old takeaway menus, and felt the pressure of tearful laughter beneath her ribs. She knew she could not work here, that the dusty cubbyhole at the Europa would have been preferable. She would have to make her escape as soon as she could. She did not want to feel uncharitable towards Macy. It was Macy, after all, who had found her the job at Minerva Textiles. But the tottering profusion of unnecessary objects filled her insides with a miasma of despair. I meant to be in meetings all day, really, Macy was saying. Will you be all right by yourself until I get back? I'll be fine, Layla said. Macy nodded and smiled, but her thoughts were clearly miles away already. She was like a bird of paradise, Layla thought one of the high-stepping lorikeets that were kept in wire enclosures in the botanical gardens. Mostly the birds died, because the European winters were too cold for them. But those tough enough to survive went on for years. Macy fluttered about the flat, shoving things into her handbag and chattering incessantly. Eventually she left. Layla went on to the window and looked down, watching Macy's blue head bobbing along the street like the cursor in a game of hive. When she was out of sight... Layla fetched a drinking glass from the cupboard over the sink and ran herself some water from the tap. The water tasted slightly sour, the way a tall city water often tasted, especially in summer. Layla turned the glass in her hand, noting its weight, the blue-green depths of the crystal, the pattern of vine leaves etched around the rim. It was a beautiful thing, at odds with almost everything else in the flat, and Layla could not avoid what she knew, that the glass had been a present from Edmund Vargas. She could feel his fingerprints on the crystal as if he had been holding it in his hands the day before. She did not know how she knew this, but she did. It was like a smell she picked up, a trace of something left behind from a person's memories, the same thing she tried to weave into her panoramas. She felt bad about her father and Macy. Macy was harmless and meant well, yet Layla hated the thought of her father being involved with her. 
In the end, though, it was none of her business. She felt a wave of relief at the thought, the knowledge that now that she had left home, she could let all that go. Macy Persimmon could move in with Edmund Vargas if she wanted, and it need not concern her. She was free. She had a sudden vision of the pine-paneled, white-painted breakfast room of the house in Cardamiley, filled to bursting with Macy's mirrored scatter cushions and her apparently innumerable family of glass elephants. The vision was horrible, but so implausible it was almost funny. The Atoll City Museum held the largest collection of the Sibyl's work in the whole of Europe. The modern-era works were mostly in good condition, but many of the older tapestries were faded and torn in places, their subjects partially obscured by centuries of inculcated dust. It was widely known that the museum's curators were caught in a seemingly inextricable deadlock over whether the weavings should be cleaned or not. The museum's director and his allies were keen to employ the latest biochemical cleansing techniques to restore these important artifacts to their former glory, but many of the older trustees were firmly against it. There were those among them that believed, as the ancients had, that tampering with the work of the Sibyls could give rise to involuntary time amendment, a spontaneous unraveling of history that could theoretically result in the deaths of millions. Layla had always dismissed such theories as primitive nonsense. She revered the Sibyls' work, not out of any superstitious belief in its power, but for what it was, the highest achievement to date of the weaver's art. Livia Saul's weaving of Poseidon's stallions the handkerchief-sized petite point of the children in the furnace by the then-fifteen-year-old Kriya Atoll. These were works of such high technical accomplishment and profound emotional impact that for Layla it did not matter whether they had in fact predicted the Nantucket tsunami or the ovens of Belson as many had claimed. The point of the work was the work, and nothing more. The prodigy Kriya Atoll was the last of the Sibyls to be granted official sanction, but it was precisely during her lifetime that the anti-clairvoyancy laws had been passed, and towards the end of her life she was forced to emigrate. Her works were priceless now, but in many of the official historical accounts, the facts of her life were often glossed over or even altered. It was seen as bad manners somehow to talk about the difficulties that she had encountered. Layla had read both of the full-length biographies of Kriya Atoll, as well as the illustrated brochure you could buy in the museum gift shop and the lengthy scholarly treatise by Duchin Selwar. Selwar's book had been banned briefly, but was now available again, albeit in a small and prohibitively expensive print run that had put it beyond the reach of most interested readers. There was a copy in the public library in Cardamiley, but it was for reference only, Layla had been forced to read it on six consecutive nights under the close scrutiny of Admost Solkos, the head librarian. When she first asked if she might read the book, he had looked at her in a strange way, as if to convey that she, Layla Vargas in particular, might be better off reading something else. It was because of her mother, of course. They thought it was catching. The color reproductions in the Selwar book were stunning, but next to the real thing they looked like dull lithographs. Standing for what must have been the fortieth time in front of Kriya Atoll's The Barbarians at the Gate, Layla found herself wishing that old man Solkos had been there beside her, so she could tell him that what she admired most about Kriya Atoll was that she was a mortal woman who never claimed anything for her works other than what was there before the eye. The rest of it, the myths and the countermyths and the downright falsehoods, were the invention of academics and proselytizers pompous acolytes who grafted on their theories and imaginings and vested interests until the inevitable political backlash sent them scurrying back into their rat holes. Kriya Atoll had been a weaver, an artist. 
Her greatness had nothing to do with the supernatural. Her power lay in her ability to translate the inner workings of her imagination to a physical form. To reveal in the images she created such intellectual and emotional complexity that those who viewed them could be persuaded they were being granted a glimpse of the sacred. This was what all artists strove for but few achieved. It was the depth of Atal's commitment that was divine. To Layla, Godhead was like beauty or physical strength, unearned and therefore of little consequence. She left the museum and entered the network of narrow streets that formed its hinterland. She had grown accustomed to the city almost overnight, recognizing in its parched squares and sunken gardens and junk-filled backyards a landscape that tolerated her presence and soothed her spirit like no other. And also the colors, colors everywhere. What she was used to was the aqua sage rust palette of Cardamile and the Ticatus. But on the streets of a tall city, the sheer profusion of peoples and commodities meant these three base hues were overlaid with a thousand others. Wasp orange and devil white, the sour blue of mold, the sweet chestnut of horse dung, the weeping pink of azalea blossom, the searing catamite yellow of the robes of choir boys on their way to temple, in the slashed mauve lips of the movie actress Bella Lukic. The posters for her latest film were everywhere when Layla first arrived in the city. She recognized again the royal purple first made famous by her father, then copied and diluted by a thousand others. Her job at the textile factory meant rising at six and taking the tram to Bathsheba, a region of stunted palm trees and bleached concrete where stray dogs trotted hopefully between the dumpsters and loud-mouthed adolescents sprawled on parched lawns playing raucous music on ancient ghetto blasters salvaged from the wrecked steam freighters that blistered and peeled on the rocks outside the harbor. The work itself, designing print templates for the Minerva factory's line of soft furnishing fabric, was not difficult, but it was sometimes interesting and it meant she had money in her pocket, money she had earned and that was sufficient to pay the rent on the studio flat she had found for herself behind the fish market. And when her shift finished at three, she was free to wander the city as she pleased. The afternoons were hot, but she relished the heat. Even in the city center, where every ironwork bench and stone-flagged entranceway seemed to magnify it. Once the shutters came down on the meat markets and the garbage trucks had done their rounds, the streets became quiet, crisscrossed with knife-edged shadows, patrolled softly by cats. People trod softly then also, as if afraid of waking the giants that, according to legend, slumbered away the days in the abandoned oil refineries and factory wastelands to the north of the city. There were thrift stores Layla liked to visit, places where you could pick up a set of pearl buttons for three drachmas and occasionally turn up a Regina-wielding jacket or a Bollinger belt. Most of all, though, she liked to just wander, letting her feet learn the city, eventually coming to rest in some overgrown local park or shut-down marketplace where she could listen to the cicadas and let her fingertips and her mind absorb the colors. She especially loved the lacquered crickel green of the thorn bushes that grew inside the walled gardens of the tall, whitewashed merchants' houses on Athenaeum Street. These thorn bushes were home to many dozens of orb-weaving spiders, attracted by the heat stored in the great fissured blocks of sandstone that made up the walls. Layla came to think of the bushes as spider citadels, their crenellated upper bastions hung with silk banners, their narrow windows set with snares to trap invaders. The Christian cultists called them St. Joan's spiders or Joannas. Iona had always insisted this was because the Christians believed the spiders were the secret emissaries of their peculiar god, 
but Layla thought it was more likely to be their distinctive markings that gave rise to the name, the simple white cross and the sweet nutmeg-colored background of their plump little bodies. She liked to watch them as they worked, their focused determination as they spun out the silk from inside them, measuring and cutting each length with the practice exactitude of the true artisan. It's not just silk to them, she thought. It's life, a material extension of their being. At first glance, the Joannas seemed identical, an interchangeable army of miniature monsters. But close to, Layla found she was quickly able to distinguish between individuals. The discovery fascinated her. There was one spider in particular she felt close to, a large and agile female with a pendulous rose-brown belly, the cross on her back so clear and so bright it looked as if it had been painted on. She liked the way that so long as she kept still and didn't say anything, the spider seemed perfectly happy to let Layla watch her at her work, demonstrating her methods in a thousand patient and skillful repetitions, almost as if she was giving a master class in advanced web building. Layla got into the habit of visiting her most days. She liked to think the spider recognized her, that she even looked forward to her coming. The first of July was so hot that the soles of her trainers felt sticky against the paving stones. Beneath the thorn bushes, the sandstone walls were alive with geckos and red-tailed leaf-cutter bees. The spider was there as usual, but her web was in tatters. Layla thought the damage had probably been caused by a lizard or by the successful escape attempt of a particularly large hornet. She watched as the spider set about the painstaking work of repairing it. The heat was making her head swim. Time, in that hidden, sunny place at least, seemed to have stopped. She puts us to shame, don't you think? Layla jumped inside her skin and turned around. She had been so absorbed in watching the spider that she was not aware that she was no longer alone, that she too was being watched. People, tradesmen and peddlers mostly, did sometimes make a shortcut along the access path, but the voice seemed to come out of nowhere. The figure she saw before her seemed enclosed in heat haze, not so much a human being as a concentration of energy. Layla shook her head, trying to clear it, and saw the shifting bands of sunlight reassemble themselves into the body of a hunched old lady. "'I'm sorry, dear,' said the woman. "'I didn't mean to startle you.' She nodded her head as if agreeing to a suggestion that had not yet been made, and Layla saw with consternation that it was someone she recognized, the ancient crone who had sat beside her on the bus between Kalamata and Tijia. The old woman was as ugly as she remembered, ugly in a way that had little to do with banished youth or beauty, but in an outlandish, almost spectacular way that could only be described as a displeasure to the eye, the repulsive visual anomaly that might be recognized in a stonefish or wolverine. Her eyes, though, were lovely, and so unusual in their violent coloration that Layla found herself wishing she had brought her watercolor box with her, so that she could make an attempt at mixing the color herself for later use. The beauty of those eyes and that desiccated face formed a contrast that was somehow indecent. It was as if the eyes belonged to someone else entirely, a lovely young woman who was being held prisoner in the body of the monstrous hag. I know you, Layla said. You were on the bus. She had no idea why she said this, only that she wanted to startle the woman as she had been startled, to make surprise drawn on her face, to see her freakish features rearrange themselves into something more human. She gave a small laugh, impatient to get a reaction. The old woman leaned forward, peering directly into Layla's face. Layla could smell her breath, the almond sugar scent of macaroons. I know you too, she said. You're Layla Vargas. I was a friend of your mother's, or perhaps I should not say much a friend as an admirer. She turned her eyes from Layla and back to the spider, 
busy anchoring the frame of her web to the stiff, barbed uprights of the thorn bush. She a beauty, isn't she? You could learn a thing or two from her, I'm sure. Not really, Layla said. A spider has no idea of beauty. She just spins. She doesn't even know she exists, much less what she's doing. You can't think that's the same as real art. She spoke absently, voicing ideas that had always felt real and important to her before, and yet now seemed imperfect and indistinct, partial truths only, perhaps not the truth at all. She didn't care. She was struggling to assimilate what the old woman had said immediately before she started raving about the spider and had known her mother. This last thing didn't seem possible. Romilly Perec had been just thirty when she died. This crone looked as if she had been alive since the fall of Rome. Yet Layla found she wanted to believe her, wanted it desperately. If this woman remembered her mother, it would mean that some part of Romilly Perec still survived, no matter how small. Layla had known for a long time that her father had killed what remained of her mother within himself, had obliterated her from his existence more thoroughly than the court judgment or the city executioners or the peerless cobalt waters of the Mediterranean could have ever done. He had been ordered to erase his memories, and he had complied. Layla could not imagine this woman complying with anything. She would die first, Layla thought. She would let them grind her bones into chalk dust. I have some books on spiders you can borrow if you like, the woman said. You'd be surprised what they can do, what they know. Who are you, Layla said. Is it true what you just said about my mother? Are you a relative? She remembered something Iona had told her, about her mother's family coming from Tsakla, the arid enclave to the north of a tall city, where the sheep drovers came in from Ankara to ply their trade, and where a shanty town of plasterboard shanks and canvas lean-toss sprawled in ragtail heaps like a tumbled deck of cards beneath the vast concrete pylons that held up the skyway. Her mother's family had been rich once, Iona said, but they lost everything in the spillages and had been forced out to live in two dank basement rooms of the great house that had once been their home. About her mother's father, she had no idea. Not a relative, no, said the old woman. She was still watching the spider, her violet eyes darting to and fro in time with the creature's movements. I used to attend her readings. Not that she read in public very often. She said it made her nervous. She switched her gaze abruptly from the spider to Layla. You do know that you share her gift. It sticks to you like pollen. I don't believe in any of it, Layla said. I don't want to talk about it. Because you think it killed your mother, or because you're afraid that it might kill you? Layla felt her insides clamp together, and she became aware, as she had sometimes did, of the meaty organic wetness of her vital organs. She remembered how in school once she had been sent home for swearing at a teacher who told them the clairvoyancy laws had been brought in to protect the state from foreign spies. Layla had never spoken of her mother's crimes, not aloud, not to anyone. She clenched her fists as if to meet an attack. Her palms were sticky with sweat. My mother was murdered, she said. She was killed by human beings, men who didn't want anyone to speak their mind because they believed free speech threatened their power. What my mother actually said wasn't important. It was crazy stuff. Is that what you think? That she was mad? She believed she could tell the future. What else would you call it? She was a poet, Layla Vargas. That's all she claimed. She never admitted clairvoyancy for herself. She was like you in that way, although she was never so fearful or strident in her denials. You shouldn't be so quick to thrust back your birthright. Not all the gods love a savant, you know, especially not an ungrateful one. I'm not a savant, I'm a weaver, and the gods are dead. She held the old woman's gaze for a moment, then lowered her eyes. 
She wished she had not said that. Taunting Iona with her unbelief was one thing, but this woman with her amethyst eyes was another, and Layla found herself hoping she had not offended her. Her thoughts undulated in slow waves like the sands of the desert, rattling and twining together like snakes in a pit. Sunlight poured down like a molten metal, scalding the nape of her neck and rendering her tension to a muddied ecstasy. Her head filled up with the roar of cicadas, and she realized, the irony of it pulling in her mind like grease at the bottom of a cooking vat, that she was waiting for the steel-blue heaven to open and swallow her. The old woman shimmered in the heat like a mirage, and for a moment Layla seemed to see not the monstrous ruined croon's mask, but the angular, fiercely clever face of Bella Lukic, who began her career by playing Athena in the TV comedy at the center of the Kentech blasphemy trial, the scandal that made her notorious and then successful. Layla blinked and then moved towards her, wanting to see her more closely, to touch her even, but nausea rose in her throat and she tumbled and fell. She crawled on her knees, feeling the dust-covered gravel pierce her skin in a dozen places. She clutched at a fence post, trying to right herself, a nettle bit into her palm. Later that evening, she saw its mark, a row of small red welts like the dotted line of a sewing template. When she finally rose to her feet, the old woman was gone. Edmund Vargas was a good father. He had cared for Layla with devotion, even when Layla knew there were those among his friends and his enemies who had said that it would be better for him, better for business, if he disowned her as he had disowned her mother. Layla loved him for his obstinate refusal to listen to their advice. More than that, she loved him for the way he had always treated her as an equal. It was from Edmund Vargas that she first learned about the alchemy of color, the quality of silk, the seemingly magical properties from the Murex snail. He himself had learned the hard way, from scratch. He loved to repeat the story of how he walked out of his own father's house at the age of 15 with a ten-drachma note in his pocket and nothing to show for himself in terms of work experience but the two summers he'd spent as a dock worker in Tyre. Layla knew her father's methods were considered old-fashioned. The press method, which involved harvesting the murex in their thousands and then crushing them to a pulp to extract the dye, had been in use for more than a generation and was the method employed by all the major commercial cloth factories. By the time Layla was old enough to card her own silks, even the exclusive couture houses who catered to top clientele and who had derided the press method initially as a cheap gimmick had gone over to it. Of the larger producers, only her father maintained the live cultivation method, husbanding the murex snails in their natural environment and milking them for their extract on a seasonal basis. Edmund Vargas's rationale was that the press method was wasteful and that the dye it produced was never as pure or as rich as dye produced using live cultivation. It sounded crazy, but Layla knew it was right. The untrained eye perhaps could be fooled, and press dyes were serviceable enough for most usages. But for Layla, her father's live bed of dyes had a clarity of tone, a fragrance almost, that made them inimitable. Layla sensed the difference with her mind as much as her eye, feeling the true purple as a billowing radiance that filled out the cloth, the same way that wind and sunlight filled out the sails of the oster when her father brought her in on the morning tide. There was also the fact that the stink and mess of the press vats revolted her, and the idea of so much killing, whole cities of sea snails, their pastures laid waste, their soft bodies rendered down to a foul gunk, made the bile rise in her throat. It was not the kind of thing you could explain to people, but it came to her more than once in the days following her encounter with the old woman that she would have no trouble in understanding. 
She returned to Athenaeum Street each afternoon, illogically hoping the old woman might be there again. But she never was. Layla couldn't believe she had let her escape without finding out where she lived, or at least her name. The old hag scared her a little, but the thought that in losing sight of her she might also have lost a link with her mother was more frightening still. She hung around in the lane, gazing into the heart of the thorn bushes and pondering what the old woman had said, that Layla could learn from the dainty orb weavers if she chose to. The more Layla watched the spiders, the more she felt prepared to admit there might be something in it. Their fixed devotion to their task was something she understood completely. She was forced to concede that the spider's ways were less of a mystery to her than those of her work colleagues at Minerva Textiles, the daughters of fishermen mostly, who were adept enough with their hands but who took no interest in aesthetics, and who used the slightest departure from routine as an excuse to forget about their work entirely. The spider's work was part of them, integral to their survival as their stomachs and guts. Since coming to the city, Layla had begun work on a new panorama, a tableau depicting the escapades of the infamous female brigand, Jocasta Zet. It wasn't until she had been at work on it for a week that she realized she'd based her image of Jocasta on the black receptionist at the Hotel Europa. She planned to mount an exhibition the following spring. Her boss at Minerva had offered her a portion of the firm's trade stand at the Atoll City Expo that autumn, but in the end Layla said no. It was an opportunity of sorts, but Layla did not want her work becoming permanently associated with the commercial sector. She had already received two private commissions on the back of the publicity generated by the competition she had won three months before her departure from Atoll City. Both commissions were lucrative, and a couple of galleries had expressed a tentative interest in representing her. If things continued to progress, she hoped she'd be able to give up her job with the Minerva within a year. In the middle of August, she began her first love affair— John Carabay was a silk and cloth merchant, originally from Madrid. He had known Edmund Vargas for years and traded his silks for high prices all over the world. He had full lips and a swarthy complexion, and the tips of his fingers were calloused from measuring yarn. Layla knew plenty of women would be drawn to Carabay by his diamond cufflinks and obvious charisma, but what attracted her most of all was the way he talked about colors throwing down their names like a gauntlet in his odd bird accent, rattling them off one by one as if reciting some obscurely riveting piece of street poetry. She first met him when she went to buy silk, joking that she couldn't afford her father's prices, and when eventually Carabay pressed his mouth down over hers in the stockroom of his cavernous premises on Salamanca Street, she did not resist. She was shocked and secretly thrilled at how this slant-eyed tycoon with a sardonic grin and the coolest head for figures she had ever known became on the lumpy daybed in the back of his offices a foul-mouthed and unhindered as a common soldier. That she was not the only woman she was seeing did not occur to her. After their affair was over, she wondered how she would have been so stupid. Women were a game for Carabay. The only things that truly moved him were money and silk. He's a tight bastard, your dad, he would say as he pulled one of the dyed silk squares her father always sent out as samples back and forth through his outspread fingers, as if frustrated he could find no fault with it. Layla felt a surge of pride whenever he said this, knowing Edmund Vargas cared for more about quality than he did about money, that somehow through her father she and John Carbe met as equals. Later, she was forced to wonder if this had been the truth all along, that Carbe had seduced her as a way of getting back at her father. She understood that he genuinely begrudged the money he had to lay out on Edmund Vargas's purple, even though he knew he could sell his allotted consignment ten times over. He held the square up to the light, 
a purple dusk descended upon his upturned face. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Damn swindle, if you ask me. Highway robbery. But the first thing she noticed about the woman she saw him with at the Parnassus was that she was carrying a clutch bag sewn from purple damask, her father's blend. The Parnassus was a matador club at the western end of the docks, a place where minor starlets congregated in the hopes of hooking themselves a major league fighter or attracting the attention of one of the dozens of agents and talent scouts who were said to hang out there. Layla watched the women passing to and fro beneath the lights, sneaking glimpses of their own reflections in the mirrored ceiling, and wondered what they did with themselves in the daytime. She would not normally have entered a place like the Parnassus, but she had been invited to the club by the management to discuss a commission. The saloon was stuffed with expensive artwork already, most of it bowl-themed, and Layla privately thought that cramming in more would be a waste of money. But the price named was so high she couldn't refuse, and the glitzy opulence of her surroundings even gave her the confidence to ask them to raise it a little. The manager seemed vaguely familiar, and at some point during the course of their discussions, Layla realized it was Steerly Jurassic, the prize fighter who had often been on TV shows when she was young. He asked if she would join him for dinner, but she declined. She did not want to run the risk of the man making a pass at her, then jeopardizing the commission by refusing him. She was making her way to the exit when she saw them, John Carabay and the woman with the purple clutch bag, sitting together in one of the velvet-curtained booths to the side of the bar. They were laughing together, forehead to forehead. Carabay's arm lay lightly about her shoulders. She hurried from the club, telling herself that the woman was probably just one of Carabay's business clients. She decided not to mention the incident, but when Carabay came to her flat the following evening, it came spilling out. The thing that shocked her most was that Carabay laughed. How do you think I got you that commission in the first place, he said. Honor Clayton is the manager's girlfriend. She designed the place, the interior anyway. They don't shell out top dollar for just anyone. Think of it as greasing her palm. He smiled suggestively in a way that made Layla rigid with anger, even as she realized with horror that she was turned on by it. I'm not just anyone. Do you mean to say the manager knows about this? Of course he knows. It's how he keeps her. Old Nestor has been past it for years. Her mind reeled, trying to work out who Carabay was talking about, then realizing that Nestor must have been the real name of Steely Jurassic. In a voice that seemed to come entirely from outside herself, she asked Carabay to leave. 
He threw out his hands in a gesture that could have been annoyance or supplication, then shrugged and pulled on his jacket. It was an expensive jacket, made from white pigskin and soft as kid. You honestly didn't expect me to give up my life, did you? He said. I can't exist like that, Lay. I'd die of boredom in a week. Then he was gone. The sound of the closing door filled Layla with a kind of dull exhalation, but in the days that followed, she was disturbed by how much she missed him. Not so much Carbe himself as his body, his defiant way of handling her, the release of sex. Sometimes she would wake in the night, longing for him so savagely she found herself chewing her knuckles to keep from crying. She longed to talk to someone, but there was nobody she felt she could confide in. The girls at the Minerva seemed to change boyfriends on a weekly basis, emerging from each new breakup furious but apparently unscathed. Layla could not bring herself to believe that they would have any real insight into her feelings. About a week after it happened, she called in sick and took the bus out to Tsakla in search of the old woman. Even as she stood waiting at the bus stop, she knew the chances of finding her were all but non-existent, that she had no reason to believe the old hag lived in Sakla or anywhere else. It was just a hunch she had, the belief that if Iona was right about her mother's family being from Tsakla, then the old woman also must have grown up thereabouts. In any case, it was all she had to go on, and she was desperate. But it was a sordid place, a rotting hive of crumbling tenements in boarded-up strip malls, and as she passed from one rubbish-strewn parking lot to another, she began to wonder what had possessed her in coming here. She knew that ordinary people lived there, that many of the dock workers and office cleaners, the women who worked in the premier canning factory and the Soyinkin paper mill, all came from Sokla. But in the middle of the day, the place had a disused quality. A sense of dusty abandonment that Layla felt as a nagging unease that prickled at her sinuses and made it feel as if she had a cold coming. She kept expecting something bad to happen, and when nothing did, it was almost worse. She ended up back where she started, at the bus stop on Elias Road outside a foreshortened terrace of five-story tenements. The last house in the row was a ruin, though the lower rooms were clearly still occupied. Washing fluttered from the ground floor windows like the remnants of bunting from some long-ago fiesta. There was a smell of guano and rotting timber. The houses opposite had once been grand, but the misfortunes that struck the district had reduced them first to lodging houses and then to bedsits, four to each floor. She wondered if her mother had grown up in such a house. A slip of a girl with scabbed knees and coarse, dark hair as unruly as her own. She stared across at the houses able almost to convince herself that if she imagined it clearly enough, one of the doors would open and the girl would come out. She didn't, and the street remained empty. When the bus arrived, Layla boarded it quickly and did not look back. As they re-entered the city proper, she thought for a moment that she saw the old woman coming out of a grocery store just below the entrance to the bird market. But when she looked more closely, she saw it wasn't the old woman at all, but a young girl, her closely cropped hair sprayed silver and pushing a baby buggy. Nonetheless, she had the feeling that the hag was watching her. She got off the bus at the main depot, pushing her way through the crowds of early shift workers to the exit. Her feet ached. She wanted only to return to her studio and lie down. She thought of John Carbay, prepared for the full explosion of pain that normally accompanied such mental probing. But her center felt barren and still, like a desert encampment after a sandstorm. She made coffee and checked her emails. There was a note from the marketing manager of the Parnassus, confirming her advance for the commission. 
For a moment, Layla considered writing to cancel it, but quickly rejected the idea. When she looked at it dispassionately, she knew the Parnassus job was the most useful thing that could have come out of her relationship with John Carvey. She wrote the manager a polite acknowledgement instead. Then she fell asleep on the bed. She was awakened some time later by a discreet knocking, a series of soft taps on the door followed by a shuffling sound outside, as if the person waiting was shifting from foot to foot. Her first thought was of John Carabe, but she quickly dismissed it. Carabe would have made more noise and would have never knocked so timidly. She smoothed down her hair with both hands and opened the door. The woman on the other side was small and slight. At first glance, she might have been mistaken for a child, although on closer inspection, Layla supposed she was in her mid-forties. She was wearing skinny jeans, a knee-length smock, grass-stained trainers, the kind of clothes that might have been worn by a woman half her age. The effect was incongruous and vaguely upsetting. A mapping of fine wrinkles spread out from the corners of each eye. Hello, Layla said. Can I help you? She thought the woman was probably lost. She could see no other reason why she would be there. Are you alone, the woman said. Can I speak to you for a moment? What's this about, Layla said. Do I know you? The woman hung back on the threshold, blinking rapidly in a way that for a moment gave Layla the bizarre notion that the woman was not human at all, but some elaborately constructed mechanical dummy. You are Layla Vargas, she said. I was told that you can tell the future. I am Layla Vargas, yes, but I'm not a savant. I don't know who told you I was, but it isn't true. My name is Nash Craw. My husband is Demetrius Zenicus, the marksman. My son, Alcander, is very ill. The doctors won't admit it because they're very afraid of my husband, but I know he's dying. I want you to recast his future. She held up a bag, a small sewn pouch covered in the complex embroideries Layla recognized as charm locks. She guessed the bag was full of coins or credits. This is nothing, the woman said. I can pay you twice this amount. She swung the bag to and fro on its strap. It was Thenica Campos who told me where to find you. Said you can do it. She said I should ask you straight out. I don't know who you're talking about, Layla said. Thenica Campos is a savant also, but she no longer practices. She told me she knew you as a child. You're talking about the old woman, Layla said. She turned away before Nash Craw could answer. She didn't want the woman to see her face, to read the amazement and relief she knew were written there. She had found the old woman again at last, or at least the old woman had found her. You'd better come in, I'll make you some tea. She swept discarded clothes and a length of backing fabric off the single armchair and onto the floor. When she touched Nash Craw briefly on the shoulder to indicate that she should sit down, she felt a heavy, low-level emanation that could have been simple nervousness, but felt more like fear. Nash Craw sat, resting her bag of coins in her lap like some small, humped animal, she reached upwards, twisting the beads of her necklace, a string of pale topaz. Layla thought it remarkable that a woman like Nash Craw could possibly be afraid of her. She ran water into the kettle. I can't do what you want me to do, she said. You have to understand that. I don't believe such things are possible. Not even the Sibyls could tell the future, not really. All art is prescient to an extent. It's an art's nature to look forward. But art deals with feelings, not facts. Great art shows you what you want to see. That's the greatest of it. But the future doesn't exist until we get there. You can't change something that doesn't exist. There are people who would say your views are blasphemous. There are others who would say they are the law. Layla turned away abruptly, pouring boiling water over the tea leaves. She felt angry with Nash Craw for goading her into saying things she didn't believe. 
She had no respect for lawmen who put statues in place simply to uphold their own prejudices. It had been men just like them who ordered the death of her mother. In Layla's view, the clairvoyancy laws were despotic and ultimately illogical. You might just as well try to outlaw insanity. But she felt Nash Craw had backed her into a corner. As she waited for the tea to brew, she thought about the old woman, Thenic Acampos. Thenic was an odd name, foreign. Layla wondered what she had meant by sending Nash Craw to her. Nash Craw with her dirty trainers and expensive jewelry, her hackneyed belief in a philosophy the old woman knew Layla despised. Perhaps it was simply that Nash Craw was rich, and Thanic Acampos thought Layla could probably do with the money. She poured the tea and tore open a packet of cookies. I'm sorry about your son, she said. I wish I could help, but I can't. Would you just come and see him, said Nash Craw. Alcander doesn't get many visitors, not now. There was a pleading look in her eyes, a kind of willed helplessness that filled Layla simultaneously with rage and pity. I don't know if that's a good idea, she said. I don't really have the time. I'll pay you for your time, of course, Nash Cross said swiftly. I mean, I'd like to commission something from you. I want to order one of your tapestries. She plucked at the cord of the bag in her lap. The coins inside clinked together like wafers of granite. Could you come tomorrow? She told Layla her address, a street in a part of the city Layla had heard of but never visited. A district of bulky mansions behind electrified railings, of narrow cobbled cul-de-sacs and marble fountains. She had heard that a lot of ex-militiamen lived there, high-stakes gamblers, people with security concerns. Nash Cross said her husband was a marksman, which was really an admission that he was a gun for hire. In spite of herself, Layla felt curious. She asked Nash Craw if she would mind leaving the bag of coins as a deposit on the commission. She thought such blatant talk of money might put an end to the whole business. But to her amazement, the woman agreed without hesitation. I'll see you tomorrow, then, she said. She handed her the bag. Once Nash Craw had left, Layla tipped out the coins and spread them across the floor. There were twenty in all, the gold amulettos that had stopped being official currency two centuries before, but that could be exchanged unofficially anywhere for five thousand drachmas apiece. Layla felt faint. It was more money than she had ever seen in her life. She felt an urge to run after Nash Craw, to pursue her down the street and thrust the bag with its contents back into her hands. She knew that her possession of the coins committed her to something, that it tied her to Nash Craw and her son and to the old woman Thenica Campos in ways she did not yet understand. She was not used to being tied to anything. It was tantamount to selling her soul. It was a lot of money, though. A sum like that would assure her financial freedom for many years. She picked up one of the coins, remembering the fake brass amuletos that had once been a collecting craze amongst her schoolmates. It was from these that she recognized the twin motifs, Idris and Seneca on one side, the double-headed hydra of a tall city on the other. Seneca had been one of the top lawgivers of his time. His wife Idris had been the daughter of one of his consuls. The gold amulettos had been minted to commemorate their marriage. Four years later, Idris was tried and executed for espionage. But that was all ancient history. Layla hoped touching the coins might help her gain insight into Nash Craw and her motives. But the bag and its contents seemed as bare of her mysterious benefactor as if she had never handled them. They were not bare of everything, though. As she slid the piece of gold from hand to hand, she had the uncanny sensation that someone was watching her. 
She concentrated hard, and after some minutes, she understood the coins had been the property of the marksman, Demetrius Senecus. The house was more or less as she had imagined, a facade of rust-colored stone behind an invisible security barrier that emitted a warning hum as you approached it. She spoke her name into the intercom, and after a second or so, the air seemed to shimmer in front of her, indicating that the barrier had been disengaged. She had expected Nashcraw to be there to meet her, but there was no sign of her or of anyone. Although Layla knew from the spy drone that buzzed almost inaudibly overhead that someone was watching everything she did. The front door of the house was unlocked. Layla stood in the hall, uncertain of where she should go or what she should do. At first she could see nothing at all. She suspected the darkness had been artificially intensified as a security measure. But as her eyes gradually adjusted, she realized it was simply the effect of the contrast between the gloomy interior decor and the bright sunlight outside. The floor was of polished red granite. The walls had been done out in old-fashioned teak paneling. The effect was opulent but depressing. She pushed open one door and then another, revealing the interior of a cupboard stuffed with coats and a side room that apart from an upright clavichord appeared to be empty. At the end of the hallway, a broad staircase led upwards through a black glass ceiling that Layla realized was probably a two-way mirror. The thought of ascending the staircase filled her with an anxiety that she could only put down to the intense and unexpected silence of the place. Mrs. Craw, she said, hoping the sound of her own voice might make her less jumpy. Nash? She tiptoed to the end of the hall, then passed through a doorway into a long corridor with half a dozen more doors opening off it. She thought it might be entirely possible to get lost in the house. An image came to her of herself coming out of the house a full ten years older than she was when she went in. The thought was horrifying, but also funny. She giggled nervously to herself. The door closest to her seemed to be locked. She tried each of the others in turn until she found one that opened. She came upon Alcander Zenicus in a sun-filled room overlooking the garden. From the way Nash Craw had spoken about him, Layla had expected him to be younger, an eight-year-old child, perhaps. In fact, he was a fully grown man, a year or so younger than herself, perhaps, but no more than that. He had the same skinny build as his mother, though he was taller by a good six inches. He was lying on a linen-covered daybed, naked except for a pair of white cotton boxer shorts. He would have been good-looking, had it not been for the scaly, putrescent rash that covered his body. The rash had been treated with some kind of restorative eugenite, an oily preparation that made the scabs and blotches gleam as if oozing with slime. The room was filled with the awful, sour-sweet stench of rotting meat. Though whether it came from the youth's diseased skin or from the ointment, it was hard to tell. Layla noticed all the windows of the room were closed. The sky pressed itself against the cedarwood frames, hard and glistening as cellophane. The youth sat bolt upright. He drew in his breath, snatching as something near his feet, a bedsheet stained with traces of the greenish ungent. He threw the sheet around his shoulders and drew it close. I'm sorry, he said. I know I should keep my clothes on, but I can't stand the itching. He smiled, clearly wanting to make a joke of it, but the painful-looking lesions on his lips and in the roughened, reddish skin around his mouth made the smile so horrible Layla had to force herself not to look away. In spite of her revulsion, she admired his bravery. She had imagined someone helpless and Molly cuddled. Within moments of meeting him, Layla could tell Alcander Zenicus was neither. Nor did it look as if he was dying exactly. It was more like he was doing battle with something. The rash or pox or whatever it was that was attacking his body had brought him low, but it had not finished him, 
at least not yet. Would you like me to open a window, she asked. It's so stuffy in here. She hesitated. She wanted to ask what he was doing shut up inside when fresh air would probably do his skin more good than any amount of healing ungent. Was she supposed to acknowledge his condition or pretend not to notice it? Nashcraw hadn't said. I wouldn't if I were you, said the youth. Not unless you want a dose of my mother's theory about spores. Spores? That's them. Once they get a hold of you, you've had it. He smiled his awful smile, widening his eyes in mock horror. Like her thoughts about the house earlier, it was terrible, but also funny. Layla began to laugh, then covered her mouth. It seemed wrong that she should be laughing in a room like this. But then, she noticed, this room was different from those parts of the house she had seen so far. There was none of the granite, the heavy wood paneling. Instead, the tiled floor was softened by rush matting. The whitewashed walls covered in maps, detail hand-drawn charts of what looked like the eastern Mediterranean and the Aegean Islands. I'm researching for a book, the boy said, seeing her looking. A biography of the poet Pantalemon. I don't suppose it'll be a masterpiece, but it's a fine way of passing the time. The antique word fine seemed to ring in Layla's ears like a high, clear bell. She had heard of Pantalemon, but only vaguely. She had a feeling his poetry was difficult to understand. I don't know much about him, she said. Wasn't he in exile or something? Yes, he was. He was banished for indecency and spent the last twenty years of his life on the island of Kos. That was where he wrote his greatest works. What kind of indecency was he banished for? He was in love with his sister and honest enough to write poems about it. Why? Are you interested in poetry? I don't know anything about it. That really doesn't answer the question. He paused. You're that soothsayer or whatever that my mother keeps going on about. You're not remotely how I imagined you. What were you imagining, then? A gummy old crone in a headscarf? In any case, I'm not what she's looking for. I tried to tell her, but she wouldn't listen. You noticed. They both smiled. This time his smile didn't seem so terrible to her. It was amazing, Layla thought, how quickly you became used to someone if you liked them, no matter what they looked like. What's wrong with you, really? she asked. He shrugged. Nobody seems to know. A fungal infection gone haywire? Hence my mother's obsession with spores, I suppose. It looks like childhood eczema, but it doesn't respond to any of the usual treatments. Anyway, the problem is it's beginning to spread inwards. Eventually it will attack my vital organs, according to the medics, and then my spinal column. They reckon I have another two years before that happens, three if I'm lucky. But that's awful. I'll be sorry not to finish the book. He lay back against the daybed's padded headrest and closed his eyes. His eyelids were blistered, the skin crusted with solidified mucus. Layla found she could not look at him any longer. A deep ache had settled in her gut. It was as if maggots were feeding on the lining of her stomach, and she wondered if that was how it was for Alcanor Zenicus, not just when he was tired, but all the time, the steady, inexorable pain of being eaten alive. She went towards him, meaning to comfort him somehow, or at least tell him he must stay alive or so he could continue writing his book. But before she could say anything, the door opened and Nashcraw appeared. Layla was startled by the sight of her, not just because of the suddenness of her appearance, but because of the way she was dressed. The trainers and jeans were gone. In their place was a calf-length black dress of the kind the gambling widows wore. The dress was clearly hand-tailored, clearly worth a fortune. Layla realized she had been foolish in not realizing that the baggy smock and dirty trainers had been a front, a disguise she could put on when she wanted to move about the city without being noticed. 
Her eyes flew to the youth on the couch. Alcander, her voice was sharp and with panic. I told you to keep your door locked until I got back. It's okay, Mom, really. Layla and I were just talking. He opened his eyes, blue slits in his ravaged face, and tried to moisten his lips with the tip of his tongue. The tongue also looked reddened, ulcerated. Layla wished Nash Craw would learn to rein in her anxiety, at least when she was in the presence of her son. She did not like to think how it must be for Alcander, burdened every waking minute with the love of this woman when the burdens he had to bear were already so great. The sound of his voice seemed to relax Nash Craw, however. Her expression softened. Her posture became less tense. It's time for your sleep now anyway, sweetheart. I'm going to steal Layla away, find out what you two have been gossiping about. She turned towards Layla, smiling tentatively. Layla understood that it was only once she had reassured herself that her son was still alive and in no worse a condition than when she had last seen him that she was finally able to acknowledge the existence of another person. Would you like to see the garden, Nash Craw said? I'll tell the girls to fetch us some drinks. Layla supposed that by girls she meant servants. She nodded her assent. She stared at Alcander Zenicus, his blistered arms straight by his sides, the stained sheets stretched over his prone body, and wondered if she would ever see him again. The thought that she might not brought a stab of regret, a sense of loss that seemed more deeply rooted than anything she had felt for John Carabay. Is there anything of Pantalemon's stuff online, she said? I'd like to read some of his poems. You'll find some of his early lyrics, I expect. The youth's voice was now close to a whisper, and Layla realized their conversation had probably exhausted him. She remembered the way she had judged his mother and felt bad. What did she know, about Alcander or about anything? The poems of exile are harder, but the lyrics are good. A good starting point, anyway. I'd like to know what you think of them. I really mean that. Then I'll come back and tell you, said Layla. I mean that, too. She turned away then. She was aware that Nash Crow was looking at her, but she avoided her gaze, not wishing to know how her conversation with Alcander had been received. She passed from the room, back into the dim corridor. Nash Craw said something to Alcander, too quietly for Layla to hear, then followed her out. She closed the door softly behind her. He likes you, she said. That's good. I like him too, Layla said. She was surprised by Nash Craw's acceptance of her son's friendly interest in her, a virtual stranger. She had expected signs of jealousy, possessiveness, and again she felt guilty for misjudging the woman. Let's go outside, Nash Cross said. There are things I should tell you. She led the way along the darkened corridor to where a door at the end gave access to the grounds. From Alcander's room, the garden had looked extensive. But Layla now saw the view offered to her from the window hadn't shown her the half of it. The gardens were vast. The formal arrangement of flower beds and dwarf olives she had glimpsed from Alcander's window presented merely a small portion Beyond the olives lay a grazing meadow, and beyond that a scrubby hillside busy with wildflowers. The blue tongue of the sea lapped at the horizon. There was no sign of the neighboring houses, though, and Layla realized with a jolt that what she was looking at was a hologram projection. She stared into the middle distance, trying to work out where the real grounds ended and the projection took over, but found it impossible to tell. Sophisticated projections of this type were invariably the property of advertising corporations or major league international hotel chains, and were far beyond the means of private citizens. The gardens of his villa were proof that Demetrius Senecus was not just rich, he was untouchable. 
There was nothing he could not buy. The finest surroundings, the most qualified doctors, meticulous round-the-clock care. The idea that a man like that would come to her for assistance was preposterous and in its own way terrifying. Well, said Nashcraw, will you help him? She stood sharply erect, her arms folded across her chest. In her black dress and gold sandals, she resembled a tiny, thwarted queen. In contrast with the evening before, her pale gaze was interrogative rather than pleading. How can I, said Layla, I'm not a doctor. I don't mean that, and you know it. I want you to weave a new future for him. If it's the lawman you're afraid of, then don't be. We'll make sure you are protected. You see how things are here. Name your price and we'll pay it. I don't care about money. Money is not a problem. I wish I could say yes. I wish I could actually do the things you think I can. But it's just not possible. Nashcraw sighed. She let her arms fall to her sides. It's been five years since I last saw my husband. Do you know that? She said suddenly. He says it's because it's not safe for him to come home at the moment. But I know it's because he's ashamed to look at his son. He blames himself for what is happening to Alcander. A Carthaginian warlord put a curse on Alcander to get back at Demetrius. Demetrius killed his son, you see. He shot him through the back with a poisoned arrow. It took him three days to die, and he was in agony. Three months after it happened, the first sores began to appear on Alcander's body. But why did Demetrius kill him? The other man's son, I mean. He was paid to, of course. That's all I know, and that's all I want to know. I don't like to get involved in politics. She threw out her arms. Demetrius never misses. He isn't rich and famous for nothing. I just wish he'd killed the father as well. None of this would have happened if he'd finished the bastard. She put a hand to her hair. He's strict about that, though. No contract, no killing. It's a terrible story. Layla thought of the warlord's son, screaming in pain from the necrotic wound. The idea that Alcander's illness was some sort of punishment for his father's action was laughable. Yet she could not shake it. It insisted, as a line from a song might insist, or the final fateful words of a farewell letter. I'd like to come and see Alcander again, though. Would that be all right? You can visit whenever you like, said Nashcraw. He never sees anyone, just me and the girls. People are afraid to come near him. It's terrible for someone so young to be so alone. She gasped, deep in her throat, and Layla realized she was on the verge of tears. But you will make a picture for him? One of your tapestries? That is all I ask. It doesn't matter what it is, just so long as it is for him and for him alone. I'll do it, Layla said, but I don't want any more money. I want it to be a present for Alcander. Nashcraw clasped her hands together as if she were praying. The next moment she was on her knees in the grass, hugging Layla fiercely around the waist. Thank you, she gasped. I don't know how to thank you. She made a small choking sound, and Layla could feel her whole body shaking. Mrs. Craw, she said, please don't. There's no need. She took a step backwards, trying to disentangle herself from the woman's grasp. At that moment, the passage door flew open and two children emerged. One was carrying a large glass pitcher filled to the brim with a cloudy yellow liquid Layla guessed was lemonade. The other child, skipping beside her, carried a tin tray. On it stood two glass beakers and a plate of slightly squashed-looking fairy cakes. We made them all ourselves, said the child. She set the tray down on the grass. 
We know you did, Selina. You're both very clever, said Nashcraw. She struggled swiftly to her feet. These are my girls, she said. She reached out her arms, drawing the younger child to her and ruffling her hair. The girl was very young, six years old, perhaps, but it was already clear she would become a fairer, sunnier version of her mother. The older girl looked more like Alcander. She had a tiny cross-shaped birthmark below her left eye. Layla drank a glass of lemonade and ate a cake, and then she had to be going. "'Show Layla to the door, would you, Selina?' said Nash Craw. The child did so, running ahead of her along the corridors to like a playful animal. As Layla stepped out onto the drive, the girl snatched at her hand. "'Are you in love with our brother?' she said. "'I like Alcander very much,' said Layla. "'I hope he gets better soon.' Mummy says there's a monster after him. I'm scared it will eat him up. I'll have to catch him first. She touched the girl's upturned button nose with the tip of one finger. And we're going to make sure it doesn't. We're better than monsters, aren't we? It was almost dark by the time she got home. She boarded the wrong bus by mistake, traveling miles out of her way as a result. She arrived back at her flat to find a note from John Carabay pushed under the door, inviting her to meet him for a drink at one of the bars he frequented. She tore the note in half and dropped it into the waste bin under the sink. The bookshop attached to the city museum stocked several collections of poetry by Pantalemon. Layla bought a selected poems, which seemed to contain works from his period of exile as well as verses written while he was still a student in a tall city. On the whole, she preferred the lyrics, as Alcander Zenicus had predicted she would. These early poems seemed daring to her, full of monsters and murder and political intrigue, as well as the riveting colors and harsh textures of the Aegean. She admired especially a long narrative sequence called The Pirates, about a renegade trireme captain and his feud with a battle-hardened mercenary from Carthage. But the captain and the soldier were blinded by their own ambition, and so alike in many respects that they were more like brothers than enemies, although neither of them seemed prepared to recognize it. The poem coursed with a black humor that was absent from the later poems. Certain scenes provoked such vivid images in Layla's mind that it was like recalling moments from a film. She read the poem obsessively, learning whole sections by heart. At some point she became aware that the pirates would form the basis for the panorama she had promised to weave for Alcander Zenicus. She thought about Alcander a great deal. She knew there had been something between them, a spark of mutual attraction that seemed to transcend all obstacles. The thought of touching his diseased skin was repugnant. And yet at the same time Layla felt a strong desire to be with him again as soon as she could. She spent a lot of time on online forums, trying to discover the exact nature of Alcander's sickness, but her findings were too general to be of much use. If the best doctors in a tall city had proved unable to help him, how could she? Thanic Acampos would know what to do, she thought. The idea resonated within her as a constant refrain. She wished she'd asked Nash Craw for the old woman's address when she had the chance. She thought about emailing her, but she did not want Nash Craw to pry into her business. She could not forget what Nash Craw had said. That Thanic Acampos claimed she had known Layla as a child. Layla scoured her mind for memories, but there was nothing, just an aching blankness and the sense of having forgotten something that was not there to be remembered in the first place. It was the same as the feeling that came over her when she tried to remember her mother. It was as if the old woman had rummaged around in her life and altered her past. She tried to put the whole subject of Thanic Acampos out of her mind 
but one afternoon after work she found herself taking a bus up to Amberville and calling on Macy Persimmon. She had not been in touch with Macy since moving out of her flat and wasn't sure how she would be received, but Macy seemed delighted to see her. She came to the door wrapped in a dressing gown and with a towel twisted around her head. Traces of scarlet hair dye streaked her forehead. Look at you, she said. I honestly can't believe how much you've changed. She pressed both hands to her cheeks in an exaggerated gesture of surprise. Her fingernails flashed and glinted like little pink daggers. Changed how, Layla asked. Tendrils of Macy's newly dyed hair were escaping from beneath the towel. The red she had chosen for it was warm like a flame and clashed extravagantly with the blue-tinged fuchsia of her nail varnish. Layla couldn't decide whether this was intentional or not. She still found it hard to understand what her father had seen in her. Oh, you know, Macy lowered her silvered eyelids, looking embarrassed. You were such a country mouse when you first arrived, but now look at you. You look amazing. Thanks. Layla did her best to smile. She felt illogically annoyed, knowing it was the surface changes Macy was referring to. The wielding jeans, the vintage Waco Gladstone bag she had picked up for five drachmas in one of the thrift stores round the back of the meat market. Macy would not know about the commission from the Parnassus, the hours Layla spent in the city museum studying the works of Crea Atoll and Livia Sol. And even if she did, she wouldn't care. What does it matter, Layla thought. You don't have to see her again after today. She did her best to bite back her frustration. Do you know if Dad has any relatives here in the city, she asked. Aunts or cousins, people like that? I don't think so, Macy said. There's his brother, but he's in Damascus, isn't he? I'm not sure if there's anyone else. It never came up. I'm not talking about Uncle Robin, someone older. I honestly don't know, Leela. Why don't you ask him yourself? Don't tell me you've fallen out with him or something. Not at all. I was just curious. I thought I saw someone I recognized. Well, if you say so. You should call him anyway. He misses you, you know. I think I will. What Macy said shocked her a little. In her weekly emails to her father, she told him which books she was reading and passed on brief snippets of gossip from the Minerva, because she knew he liked to hear these things. But his replies were short, and he never gave any indication that he was affected by her absence. She didn't like to think of her father unhappy. But the truth was, there were days when she didn't think of him at all. I should go, she said to Macy. She went home feeling depressed, wondering what she had hoped for from Macy, why she had wasted her time. She decided to spend the rest of the evening selecting the colors for the new panorama. The feel of the silk between her fingers restored her spirits as it always did. She had decided to concentrate on one scene from the pirates in particular, a sequence from the third canto where the soldier, Talos Mavermatis, captures a pack of nighthounds and drives them abroad Atlas Tyburn's trireme the Hesperian. She chose deep, sure colors, Venetian red and yellow ochre and Prussian green, colors that would capture the drenching heat and burnished intensity of the Aegean summer. She went to bed late and slept badly. She could not stop thinking about the nighthounds, which with their sleek coats and long muzzles reminded her of a lurcher her father had once owned that swam out to sea in pursuit of a moray and never came back. She supposed her preoccupation with the drowning was inevitable, given her family history. She washed and dressed, feeling muzzy-headed and somehow unreal. Just as she was leaving for work, her mobile rang. It was Nash Craw, asking if she could come and see Alcander. He's been better this week, she said. Your visit did him good, I know it did. 
For a moment, Layla imagined the packed, stuffy room almost with dread. Then she told Nash Cross she would come over that afternoon after her shift. The house felt different. Less dark, perhaps. Although she supposed this was simply because its darkness was less unexpected. Also, Nash Craw was there to meet her. I'm so glad you could come, she said. He hasn't said much, but I know Alcander's excited about seeing you. Layla mumbled some meaningless pleasantry. Once again, she felt embarrassed for Alcander. Having his privacy invaded, his every action and reaction observed and noted. When she was finally alone with him, she thought at first there was no change in him, that the improvement his mother had mentioned was all in her head. But then she noticed the way he was sitting, upright against the pillows rather than slumped back against the headrest. Beside the daybed stood a wheeled trolley of the kind used for serving meals in a hospital or a convalescent home. On it was a laptop computer. I've been working, just a little bit, he said. He nodded towards the laptop, touching the edge of the trolley with one bandaged hand. Layla could see dark stains on the bandage, places where mucus and perhaps also blood had seeped through. But the lesions on his face looked slightly less red, or at least she thought they did. I've been reading the pirates, she said. I think I'm falling in love with Talos Mavermatis. She smiled, sitting down on a chair near the window. She saw that the hologram projection had been reprogrammed to show a lake ringed by tall conifers. A wooden landing stage jutted out across the water. She found the change in the landscape disconcerting, although she supposed Nash Craw rotated the scenarios on a regular basis. Seriously? Do you like the pirates? Alcander asked. Some people find his early stuff a bit florid. I don't know much about poetry, but this, I can't explain it. She paused. I like the way it makes me feel, as if I was part of the story. It reminded me of the TV shows I used to love when I was a kid, the ones with all the monsters and gladiators. I hope you don't mind me saying that. I'm getting it all wrong, I expect. Just you and the whole gaming industry. He seemed delighted by her response. There are at least three major anime series based on the pirates, and that's just the legal stuff. Yet it was panned when it was first published. The critics dismissed it as fantasy. You're not trying to tell me it's based on fact. Isn't everything? Everything is real in a way, once you've imagined it. You sound like... You sound like the old woman she wanted to say, but then thought better of it. She did not want to bring Thanic Acampos into the conversation. It was bad enough that she kept popping into her head all the time. Layla bit her lip and turned away towards the window. The sunlight lay flat on the lake like the sheen on satin. She wondered when Alcander had last been outside in the open air. Sound like what, Alcander said. He was grinning at her, the gesture now more recognizable for what it was and less like a grimace of pain. She knew it was impossible for such rapid improvements to have taken place in Alcander's condition, yet she could hardly deny the evidence of her eyes. She told herself it was simply that she was becoming accustomed to the way he looked, that it was the man she was seeing now, not the monster that his sickness had made him. Oh, I don't know, she said. I was going to say you reminded me of Plato or something. One of those people. I don't know what I'm talking about, really. His mouth stretched wide in a soundless gagging she realized was laughter. I think you know a lot more than you let on. Anyway, I don't have much time for philosophy. All those tidy little theories they dream up. I sometimes think the philosophers are as keen on averaging people out as the lawmen. That's why I love the poets so much. A poet isn't really interested in any system of thought except his own. The academics would say Pantalemon was an anarchist, a supporter of the founding 1200. But really, he was too wrapped up in his own life even for that. 
and it's only when someone speaks for himself and for himself alone that you know he's speaking the truth. His speech ended in a burst of coughing, a terrible, raw hacking that made it sound as if his insides were being wrenched free. He covered his mouth with both hands. When he finally lifted them away, Layla saw that the palm not covered in bandages was smeared all over with green phlegm. He wiped his hand on a square of toweling that had been left looped over the headrest, then reached for a porcelain cup on the invalid table. His fingers were trembling. Layla leaped up from her seat and went to his side. She picked up the cup, which was heavy and bulky as a beer tankard. She supposed that made it less likely to be knocked over. The water in the cup had the same metallic smell as the water she had drunk from the fountain on the road to Corinth, and once again she found herself thinking of Thanica Campos. She held the cup to Alcander's lips, holding it in both hands to keep it steady. You shouldn't talk so much, she said. Not all in one go, anyway. She smiled and he gulped the water, but his face when he raised it afterwards had a stricken look. How embarrassing, he said. God only knows what you must think of me. I think you're probably the most interesting person I've ever met. She took the cup from his hands and placed it back on the table, and definitely the bravest. Interesting and brave, he pulled a face. That's almost worse than good sense of humor. She laughed. What if I was to tell you that interesting is the finest compliment I know? I'm not sure I'd believe you. I'd have to suspend my judgment until I knew you better. He reached again for the cup, and Layla saw that his hands had stopped shaking, that he was able to lift the beaker by himself. If you're forbidding me to speak, then you'll have to talk instead. The way you responded to the pirates, as if it was TV or some exciting news story, that's exactly how poetry should be read. If you treat works of art like fossils, that's what they become. You understood that instinctively. I want you to tell me why you said you didn't know anything about poetry when clearly you do know a lot. You're wrong, Layla said. I don't know anything. It was the colors, that's all, the way he described things. She paused. She realized this was a turning point, that this was the moment she must decide if what she felt for Alcander Xenicus was important enough for her to allow herself to trust him. She had never shared the facts of her life with anyone. With John Carabay, she had constructed a relationship based on the facts of her life since she had arrived in a tall city. With her co-workers at the Minerva, less even than that. If anyone asked about her mother, she simply said that she had died when Layla was a child. If she was going to tell Alcander about Romilly Perec, it should be now. It came to her that she was lucky to have a choice in the matter. The facts of Alcander's life were seared into his flesh for all to see. Whether he wanted to be or not, he was naked in front of her. I've always felt safer with pictures, with colors, she said. When you make an image, it's just that, an image. An image is only what you make of it. People can say what they like about it, but they can't really accuse you of anything. Words are different. Words are so final, somehow. Once you've said them, you can't take them back. You're stuck with them forever. And people can use them against you any time they like. She crossed to the window again and looked out at the lake. She wondered what was really there, behind the simulation. A walled garden, perhaps, of a moderate size, stocked with fig and azalea and dwarf olives like the gardens of the houses on Athenaeum Street. If I lived here with him, we would go back to that, Layla thought. Just the garden, the way it really is. My mother was a poet, she said. She was executed under the clairvoyancy laws. My father was forced to publicly disown her. Alcander drew in his breath 
and for a moment she was afraid he might start coughing again. Layla, he said, I'm so sorry. He was looking straight at her. His blue eyes, she saw, were exactly the same shade of blue as the small, delft soap dish on the shelf above the hand basin in the corner. She realized it was the first time he had called her by name. Do you know how they execute savants in Messinius, she said. They bind their limbs and throw them off a cliff into the sea. The law says that if they manage to reach the shore without human aid, they are allowed to go free. But of course, with their arms and legs roped to their bodies, most of them sink like stones in less than a minute. My mother was taken out just after dawn. Normally they would have been a crowd, but apparently my mother's execution was not popular, and so it was just the lawman and my father. Your father was there? Alcander spoke so quietly she could hardly hear him. Oh yes, that was part of the sentence, that he had to watch. He told me she floated on her back, at least at first, at least for a little while. She was a good swimmer, my father said. She was never afraid of the sea, and that was why she was able to relax enough to allow the water to carry her in towards the shore. But then a large wave rolled over her, and when it subsided she was face down in the water. He could see her trying to right herself, but she couldn't do it. It's impossible to do anything in the water without the use of your arms and legs. I know because I tried once. I swam out to sea, then turned on my back with my arms by my sides and my legs pressed together. I began to sink almost at once. But of course all I had to do was kick out a few times and I was afloat again. I kept trying to imagine what went through my mother's mind, what it was like for her in those last few minutes when she knew she was drowning and that no one was coming to save her. In the end, I had to stop trying to imagine it because it gave me nightmares. But they were only nightmares. I could kick my way out of those the same as I could kick out in the water to stay afloat. My mother couldn't do that. She had to live the nightmare right to the end. Layla began to cry, small, hard tears that forced their way out from under her eyelids and scuttled away down her cheeks. The last time she cried in public she had been thirteen, when she had let Iona goad her into a petty argument about how much TV she should be allowed to watch before a school exam. She still remembered the humiliation she felt, that she had allowed her personal feelings to be exposed in this way. This time it felt different. It felt as if she was sharing something that could not be shared in any other way. I want to hold you, Elkander said, but my hands are so awful. She raised her head, meeting his eyes, and then took his bandaged hand in both her own. She did it as gently as she could, afraid that her touch might be hurting him. Your hands are not awful, she said. It's the disease that is awful, not you. But if you live with something long enough, it becomes you. That's what frightens me, anyway, that without this thing to define me, the person I know as myself wouldn't exist. That's rubbish, Layla said, but it occurred to her even as she said it that he might be right. Would she still be who she was without her mother's execution, and the way she had secretly formed her identity around it all these years, guarding its horror within her like a vital organ? The thought was new to her and terrifying. But she guessed it was too late to worry about it now. She saw the way Alcander looked at her as she held his hand, with wonder and also with fear, as if he knew, even so soon, that in allowing another person to approach him so closely, he was opening up an entryway for hurt. She saw also that he looked tired. I should go, she said. She thought he might object, but he did not. 
either because he really was tired or because, like herself, he wanted to be alone to think about things. She squeezed his fingers gently, exerting the slightest possible pressure. The bandages were stiff to the touch, encrusted with solidified mucus, and this repulsed her even as she felt anger rise up inside her at the thought of his pain. She felt like crying again. "'Should I see your mother before I go, do you think?' she said. "'Don't bother,' said Alcander. "'She goes on the simulation most afternoons.' "'You mean?' he nodded. "'You've seen the garden?' She had a print made of Dad, the same kind of ultra-high-resolution holoprint. The holograms are like a drug with her. She's probably bonking her brains out as we speak. He smiled wanly. The mention of sex seemed to float in the air between them, a miasma of yellow particles, acrid as pollen. What about your sisters, Layla said finally? Who looks after them while she's... gone? The girls are holograms, too. I thought you knew. But I touched them. I talked to them. She remembered the fairy cakes and then the lemonade, sweetly fizzy against her tongue. She did not believe she had imagined these things, though she had to concede that the more she tried to concentrate on them, the vaguer they grew. She did not know which was worse, that Nash Craw should have to invent two normal children in order to make up for the fact that her real child, Alcander, was probably dying, or that Alcander appeared to be alone in the house with an insane mother. I don't like leaving you, she said. I wouldn't worry. There are servants, real ones, I mean. They keep me clean and tidy, mop up the mess. Don't joke about it. I'm not. His hand shifted in her grasp as he tried to squeeze her fingers. I'm so happy you came back. Will you again, do you think? I will, Layla said to him. Soon. She made her way back through the house, listening for the sounds of Nash Craw cavorting with her simulacrum but there was nothing. The silence was deep and total. And if she had not been with Alcander just a moment before, she would have sworn that the place was empty and had been empty for years. It was a ghost place, like the bombed tenements she had seen out in Saskla. She could almost imagine that if she were to return to Alcander's room and fling open the door, there would be no one there. The house, she thought, was like a glass palace, viewed in a certain way and in a certain light, it would slide out of existence entirely. She remembered something John Carabay had once said to her, that once you surpassed a certain level of material wealth, you attained a new level of madness, something the rest of the world had no concept of. She had reacted with scorn at the time. Now she found herself inclined to believe him. The afternoon temperatures were in the high 90s, and without air conditioning the flat became too hot to work in. Once her shift at the factory was over, Layla rode the trolley bus out to Vulo where she would swim off the rocks and afterwards take an iced ouzo at one of the beach tavernas. The friable heat of late August made her glad to escape the city, and during those hours she spent staring across the water towards the humped island mass of Aegean. She could almost imagine she was back in Cardamile, that if she stayed at the beach just a short while longer she would catch sight of her father, steering the oster into port. It was at these times that she thought of leaving a tall city, of packing up her studio and secreting herself in one of the dozens of dilapidated farmhouses out at Stupa or Ariapoli. She could work there undisturbed and in total safety. She did not know why the word safety kept returning to her with such insistence, but it did. She could not help thinking of Livia's soul, 
who went mad in the end, tortured or so it was said by her own visions. But as the temperature dipped in the late afternoon and the gusty breeze brought the reek of the lobster pots and shark entrails from the fishing rigs tethered in the harbor at Piraeus, she returned to her apartment and to her work on the night hounds with renewed intensity. There was something in the obsessive struggle between the seaman Atlas Tyburn and Telos Mavramatis the assassin that reminded her of the vendetta between Alcander's father Demetrius and the nameless warlord whose son he had killed. She supposed she had known this from the beginning, that it was this knowledge that had determined her choice of the pirates as the subject for Alcander's panorama. Whatever the truth of the matter, Layla did not waste time dwelling on it. The work had reached the stage where it was in and of itself the inspiration, and it occupied her thoughts to the exclusion of everything else. It was the character of the hound master Exith who preoccupied her the most. He appeared in Pantalaemon's poem only briefly, but his role was significant, and Layla had placed him in the foreground of the action. He was a slim, mercurial youth, lithe and whip-backed as one of his own hounds, and Layla knew he was really a stand-in for Alcander. For his naked flesh she chose a moon-colored silk of the finest grade available. She worked his form with care, and as the days progressed, the youth came increasingly to life beneath her fingers. There were nights when she did not lay down her work until the sea had begun to reflect the first light of dawn. For the first part of the day she was barely awake, and once she fell asleep on the bus to work, passing right through Bathsheba where the factory was and ending up at the terminus out by the skyway. She was woken by a crowd of school children, storming their way onto the bus like a swarm of bees. Her head was still stuffed with sleep. She used her mobile to call in sick, then returned to her apartment and slumped down on the bed. Her dreams were noisy and uneasy with the barking of dogs. She woke after sunset, hungry and restless with the same kind of sexual longing that had followed her separation from John Carabay. She wolfed down the remains of a takeaway paella she had bought for her supper the evening before, and then took a taxi to a bar she had heard of in the cellar of one of the hotels just south of Amberville, frequented mostly by actors in search of work and successful businessmen in their mid to late fifties. It did not take her long to find what she was looking for. The boy was pale and skinny, his fair hair pulled back from his forehead and twisted in dreadlocks. They agreed on a price— then he led her through a curtained archway to a green-tiled corridor with a number of smaller archways leading off. The booth he brought her to was stark but clean, reminding her of the room at the Hotel Europa. When the boy took off his shirt, Layla saw that his back was striped with old scars, the flesh raised and corrugated in places like a section of torn packaging material. She pressed her lips to the hardened scar tissue, tasting salt, then lifted herself astride him, thinking that she did not have to ask him how he came by the scars. She did not have to ask him anything. As her flesh parted, she thought of Elkander and came at once. It was gone one by the time she got home. She felt filled with an immense darkness, a starry vacuum in which power and despair seemed evenly matched. They circled each other warily, like fighting dogs. She did not think she would be able to sleep, but she was unconscious less than a minute after getting into bed. She was awoken by her mobile phone. Nash Craw's name was flashing on the display screen. Layla felt a flicker of dread, suddenly certain that what she had done with the boy the night before had pitched Alcander into terminal decline. I need you to come, Nash Craw said. She sounded breathless, strident, as if she had been calling Layla's number for a long time without getting a reply. 
It's a miracle. Mrs. Crowleyla said. She still felt groggy. Are you all right? What are you talking about? It's Alcander, she said. His arms and face are clear of the sores, completely clear. There were some scabs, but they just brushed off. The blisters on his legs are drying up, too, even the big ones. There was a catch in her voice, as if she was on the brink of hysterical laughter. His skin is renewing itself. He's beautiful. Layla rubbed at her eyes with the back of her hand. She felt nauseous and hungry at the same time. How is he in himself? Sleeping, mostly. It's as if his body is using all his energy to heal itself. But each time he wakes, he seems stronger. He's eating well, too. She broke off, starting to weep. I knew you could do it. Layla pressed the phone to her ear, listening to the woman's choked crying. On the other side of the room, the night hounds, tawny as cougars, frolicked and span around the figure of their master Aegis. They were shadowy as devils. The canvas worked in such a way that when you first glanced at it, the dogs appeared to be nothing more than a swirling drift of autumn leaves. She remembered the boy from the night before, taut as a bowstring above her, her fingers digging into the lattice of scars on his back. It wasn't me, she said to Nashkra. I didn't do anything. You couldn't deny it, you know. If the gods favor you with a gift, you should feel blessed. Layla fell silent. She wanted to put the phone down and take a shower, but Nash Crow was still talking, telling her she had been trying to get through to her husband all morning, but no one seemed to know where he was. It was eleven o'clock already. Layla could not remember the last time she had slept so late. You will come, Nash Crow was saying. Alcander will be wanting to see you. I can't, Layla said. Not until I finish the tapestry. Nash Cross started to say something else, to protest maybe, but Layla disconnected the call before she could finish. She felt stark fear of a kind she had never before experienced, and the knowledge that she could never enter the glass house again. She did not want to confront the evidence of what had to be impossible. She ran her fingers briefly over the tapestry, the weft lines taut as wires. Dimly she sensed their feedback faint and silvery as harp music behind a closed door. There was only Agast, the hound master. The love she had felt for Alcander seemed like a dream. She took a bus to the city center and then walked through the maze of back streets until she came to the dusty, flagged walkway that led her to the lower, shabbier end of Athenaeum Street. There was a smell of overflowing dustbins and baking asphalt, Layla slipped along an access passage that ran between two of the houses, then made her way along the lane overlooking the gardens. There was no one about. The last house in the road was enormous and very well kept. Its gleaming brickwork cast back the sunlight like a thrown discus, yet an aura of uncanny stillness surrounded it. Layla felt certain that in spite of the way it looked, the house was empty and had been empty for years. Its back gates were padlocked shut. Layla stood in the shadow of its wall and listened to the cicadas, gradually adjusting her breathing to the steady rhythm. Eventually, her heart rate began to subside. It seemed to her that she had two choices. Either she could accept what people said about her, or she could not. Nash Craw had called her gift a blessing, but if she allowed herself to believe that it would mean that in a sense the pictures, the colors, the feelings she experienced when she created her tapestries had never been hers. It would mean that everything she ever did, everything she had ever done, was predetermined. That she was not an artist. 
but an empty vessel, a convenient channel of communication between her own world and a realm she herself could merely glimpse through the panoramas. She had always thought of her work as her passport to freedom. But if what Nash Craw believed was true, then it was merely the badge of her servitude. Kriya Atoll had accepted her calling, and it had brought her adulation for a time. But in the end, the tide had turned, as it had turned for Layla's mother, as it turned for everyone. And where had the gods been then? Surely it was better to be like Livia Sol, who had refused to accept the patronage of any religion, even when the rest of the world declared her insane. Or like Pantalemon, who insisted on his personal freedom, even when it led him to exile and ruin. Thanic Acampos, she thought. Who are you, really? She turned around to face the wall, then placed her foot in a cleft left by a missing brick and heaved herself up. The thorn trees had grown massively thick, covering the inside of the gates and making entry to the garden impossible without the use of a chainsaw or a scythe. Only the orb spiders, the industrious Joannas, seemed free to come and go as they pleased. Layla watched one of them, a slim-bodied, delicate creature of a lighter brown than the plumped beauty she had observed earlier in the summer. As she touched her toes to the rear of her abdomen and extruded a silken thread, a live, liquid quicksilver that hardened to gleaming transparency within a fraction of a second. There was something balletic in the spider's movements, the same lithe effortlessness that belied the hours of practice and rapacious desire that brought all art into existence. Layla felt love rise in her, and a heartfelt admiration. She felt she would die to protect this creature, to ensure its right to continue doing what it did so well. So you still think we're all dead, then? Layla was so badly startled it made her lose her grip on the wall. She dropped to the ground, grazing her palms and painfully jolting her knees. She thought at first it was the house's owner that had called to her. Then she saw it was the old woman, Thanik Acampos. She was incongruously dressed in a dog-tooth pattern business suit and sturdy black court shoes. How can she stand it in this heat? Layla thought. Those shoes must be killing her. She looked like the ancient secretary to some particularly notorious gangland boss. I've looked for you everywhere, Layla said. I thought you didn't believe in me, said Thanik Acampos. I don't want to talk about that. I've had it up to here with all that God stuff. I want you to tell me about my mother. Your mother drowned and she was terrified. But she called to my cousin Calliope and Calliope came and lifted her out of the water. That's rubbish and you know it. Why won't you tell me the truth? Do you still call it rubbish now? The old woman bent down as if to adjust one of her stockings. Her outline seemed to shimmer, and for a moment Layla thought she was about to disappear as she had done before. No, you don't, Layla cried, not again. She reached out and seized the old woman by the sleeve, but the thickly woven material was sopping wet, and when the old woman turned to look at her, Layla saw she was staring into the face of Romilly Parekh. She looked exactly as she did in the stash of old photographs at the back of her father's wardrobe, photos that had lain hidden so long Layla suspected Edmund Vargas had forgotten they were there. She was taller than Layla and her skin paler, but she had the same coarse, unruly hair and emerald eyes. "'Tell me my name,' said Romilly Parekh. She spoke in the dry, perplexing voice of Thanik Acampos. "'That's vile,' Layla said. "'Let her go.' She grabbed both her arms, digging her fingers into the sodden fabric of her clothes and pulling her forward. The woman's eyes were shining with tears, and Layla remembered the morning of her departure from Cardamile, 
the dawn stepping towards her across the sand in her pink suede sandals. You must tell me my name before I can release her, Layla Vargas, the woman said. You should accept your gift with grace. That's all I ask. No gift is for free. Her voice was different now, younger, but still hard-edged with what seemed to Layla like regret. My gift is my own, Layla said. It has nothing to do with you. I hate everything you stand for. Are you sure about that? According to you, I don't exist in the first place. She freed herself from Layla's grasp and embraced her. Layla felt her mother's lips brush her forehead, and then she seemed to turn to nothing in her arms. A gust of hot wind blew back her hair. Don't go, Layla cried. I want to see you. Then say my name. The woman reappeared not as the old hag or Romilly Perec, but as an image from a black-and-white photograph, Bella Lukic in the role of the goddess Athena. Then this image, too, disappeared. In its place stood a woman in middle age. She was quietly dressed in a shift of blue cotton. Her hair, flecked lightly with gray, was cut fashionably short. She exuded the same kind of weary dignity you might expect to find in a soldier who has fought heroically in many wars, but who now deems war itself to be futile. She was beautiful, but in a way that made Layla afraid. Of the old woman Thanica Campos, only the eyes remained, eyes that were the color of amethyst or the pure mauve light of a summer evening. I won't go with you, Layla said. I won't. Stay then, said the goddess. Stay forever and use your gift wisely, seeing as it pleases you so much. She touched Layla lightly on the shoulder, then disappeared. Layla stumbled forward, her attention distracted by a flickering movement on the periphery of her vision. She shook her head, hoping to clear it, and saw that one of the orb-weaving spiders had become tangled in her hair. She felt a second's atavistic loathing at the thought of having the creature so unexpectedly close to her. Then she plucked a stem of dried grass from the base of the wall and held it steady so the spider could climb to freedom. The spider scuttled up the stalk, running hand over hand like a tiny brown monkey. Layla lifted her towards the overhanging branches of the thorn bushes, and after a second's hesitation, the creature scuttled aboard a leaf and ran swiftly out of sight. Layla dropped the grass stem in the dust and turned to go home. She spent the rest of the day in her flat, overcome by a dazed lethargy that was like heat stroke, only worse. She went to bed well before midnight, but awoke barely an hour later, feeling nauseous and disoriented. For some moments, she struggled to remember where she was, then recalled the encounter with the woman in the lane behind Athenaeum Street, the dizzying afternoon heat, and the cry of cicadas. She stumbled to the bathroom and vomited into the toilet, her stomach cramping painfully after each new bout of retching. Her head throbbed, as if she had been struck. Heatstroke could do this, she knew, but the sun had never before affected her so badly. She made her way back to bed, a journey that seemed to take many hours. The mattress heaved and bobbed like a raft at sea, and the cotton sheet felt stiff as cardboard, chafing against her skin each time she moved. Feeling stifled, she threw it off. The sound of a passing car brought her out in goose flesh. Her thoughts seemed disordered and strange. At some point during the small hours, she remembered the boy, the youth with the scarred back she had paid to have sex with her. It occurred to her that she might have contracted some awful disease from him, and the more she dwelled on the thought, the more it took hold. Her action, all her actions up to this point, now seemed insane to her. She wondered if this was how her mother had felt when she knew she was drowning. When morning came, she felt better, 
although she did not remember sleeping or when exactly it had begun to get light. The night terrors remained, but they seemed less urgent, like the remnants of a nightmare that still seems true on waking, but loses its grip on the world within the hour. She thought she would be able to do her shift at the factory as normal, but while she was waiting at the bus stop, she was seized by panic and forced to return to the apartment. The room sank of spent vomit and the dense animal odor of her own soured sweat. She opened the single window and the door that led out onto the small communal balcony. Salt air rushed towards her, its reek so powerfully pungent that she almost fainted. She clung to the balcony railing. Sunlight poured down, coating the sea below with a vitreous glaze. The fierceness of the reflected glare seemed to scour her retinas. She keyed her father's number into her mobile, but the phone rang and rang with no reply. She wondered who else she might call before realizing there was no one else she wanted to speak to. When dusk came, the fever left her. She went down into the street where she could feel a tall city breathing itself into life all around her. The evening air was mauve, soft and powdery as moth's wings. She could hear the clink of glasses in the restaurant along the quay, smell the smell of frying fish from the Sharkman Tavern. Somewhere further off, two girls were laughing, and in the distance, right out on the coast road, she could hear the hum of traffic heading for the Skyway turnoff. It was a moment of complete stasis, a second caught in amber, a bright jewel that she would later hold up to the eye of memory and squint inside, trying to recall its details and sensations. These were the things that defined her work, after all. Details, bright moments that were the stand-ins for whole worlds of memory. She felt lighter on her feet, as if the mass and nature of her body were of little consequence. It was form that mattered, transparency of vision, the warp and weft of the silk as it ran, like threads of spun glass, between the unaccustomed multiplicity of her limbs. The silk flowed from inside her now, and like her breath it formed the core of her being. She remembered Elkander, her pantalemon, whole now she knew, but only still a boy. A boy who was turning into a man, but only that. Still her fragile cage of a body trembled at the thought of him. And the release of her silk from within was as avoiding of ecstasy. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Nina. Nina, honestly, thank you so much. Good luck. Good luck. Yes, well, that is the four stories. Like I say, this week and last week, what do you think? Which one will bag the prize? Only you can find out. Like I say, there's a link on the show if you want to pop over to the British Science Fiction Awards page. Please do that. That would be fantastic. That is the end of the show. I hope you enjoy these two-week specials. Thank you so much, Adam. And like I say, again, congratulations, sir. <laughs> well done. The best time of your life. So... Would just like to see you. Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Current artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.